look who's come crawling back for a season finale. That's right, it's the final episode of season 19, Die Hard-Ons, here on Pick 6 Movies. And some of you look confused, so let me spell it out for you. This is a podcast, sort of a radio show on the internet, with a lot more profanity and a lot fewer rules. This podcast is called Pick 6 Movies, and what we do here is deceptively simple. We select six movies based on a theme of our choosing. In this case, it's a bunch of movies that are rip-offs of the very good action movie Die Hard in a season we call Die Hard-Ons, because that's kind of dirty and it made us snicker. Once we've picked a movie, we give you some history on the movie itself, along with an interesting tidbit or two, and then we discuss the movie in excruciating detail, along with some silly voices and lots of condescension. I think you'll enjoy it. And when I say we, I mean me, that's Bo Ransdell, and my lifelong pal Chad Cooper. This finale is a selection from the aforementioned Chad, so let's dispense with the yappin' and get to the final episode of Season 19, featuring a movie that can only be described as a mess turned to 11. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pick 6 Movies, and welcome to The Rock. There are a lot of great prison movies, and prison movies tend to come in just a few flavors. There are those movies that explore what life is like when you are in prison. Cool Hand Luke, The Green Mile, Holes, Brubaker, uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, The Longest Yard, Reynolds, not Sandler, but that goes without saying. Then there are movies that explore what life is like when you try to escape prison. The Great Escape, Midnight Express, Stir Crazy, The Shawshank Redemption, and in any great prison movie, the prison is not just the location of the film. Oftentimes the prison almost becomes a character in and of itself. Its very presence is a world with its size and oftentimes reduced color tones wrapping the walls of concrete and metal. And real prisons were oftentimes used as filming locations for actual movies to capture that certain something that only a real prison can. The Blues Brothers opening scene was shot outside Joliet Correctional Center. The Tennessee State Penitentiary was used in the aforementioned The Green Mile, and it was also used for Ernest Goes to Jail. But you know what? They can't all be winners. Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia was the filming location for 12 Monkeys and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Again, they can't all be winners. But there is one prison that has been featured in more movies than any other location, mostly because it was shut down in the 1960s. I'm speaking of none other than the iconic prison from the San Francisco Bay, Alcatraz. Before this island was turned into a home for the worst society has to offer, back in the late 1700s, Spanish Lieutenant Juan Manuel de Ayala showed up as the first European to sail through the Golden Gate, and he named the island that he saw Los Islas de los Alcatrazes, which means Island of the Pelicans, because the island was covered in these small brown pelicans. The Anglos got hold of this name, and they turned Alcatrazes into Alcatraz. The gold rush of the 1840s turned San Francisco into the place to be if you wanted to get rich quick. In 1950, President Millard Fillmore ordered that Alcatraz Island be set aside specifically as a United States military reservation. Shortly thereafter, they built a military fortress, and Alcatraz was the site of the first operational lighthouse on the west coast of the United States. 
time passed and the U.S. Army needed a place to lock up some prisoners, and somebody said, hey, what about that island with the fortress and the adorable pelicans? I think Alcatraz is what the kids call it. So the army said that'll work and they started locking up military prisoners inside this new fortress on the island with the adorable pelicans. Time passed and soon the United States was smack dab in the middle of the first civil war. Wait, why does this say first civil war? Who wrote this introduction? Carl, did you write this? You, you stay off those dark web chat boards, Carl. They're right in your brain. They're nothing but trouble. All right, back to this. During the only known <clears throat> civil war in the United States, Union deserters and Confederate sympathizers were held at Alcatraz. Native Americans who expressed some displeasure in how the federal government was handling some land issues, they got locked up at Alcatraz. American soldiers who deserted during the Spanish-American War and Chinese civilians who resisted the army during the Boxer Rebellion, lock them all up. And the inmates being held there grew in number until one day somebody said, hey, we've got almost like 500 people here and they're all ruffians. Maybe we should build something stronger than this fortress, you know, to hold all these really bad dudes who want to kill each other and most likely want to kill me. And so that's what they did. Construction began in 1909 on a brand new main cell block and was completed three years later. The island was officially designated as a federal prison in 1934, and Alcatraz was set to be the home for the prisoners from other prisons who were causing all kinds of trouble. They were the worst of the worst. And so it was on August 11th, 1934, 137 prisoners who kept causing trouble at all these other prisons, well, they made their way to Alcatraz. Most of them were notorious bank robbers and murderers. And at the time, there were 155 staff members, including the prison's first warden, James A. Johnson, and his associate warden, J.E. Shuttleworth. Those are pretty good prison warden names. Alcatraz was used as a prison for just 29 years. And during that time, it was home for notorious prisoners like Al Capone and George Machine Gun Kelly. Political terrorist Rafael Miranda was a member of the Puerto Rican National Party, and he and others attacked the United States Capitol. See, in 1954, Puerto Rican nationalists smuggled guns inside the U.S. Capitol, and they opened fire on a session of Congress as a means of protest in support of Puerto Rico's independence. He was sentenced to 85 years for that. And here's why that sentence is total garbage. He, because he, oh my God. There are two more, Carl, I'm not reading two more pages of this. You need to spend less time chatting with your friends online Carl, where were you January 6th? You know what? Don't answer that question because I don't want to get pulled in to your world call. I'm going to skip ahead, Carl. No more of this talk. Just write facts. I don't want your conspiracy theories, Carl. All right, here we go. Alcatraz also imprisoned Alvin Creepy Carpus, who served more time at Alcatraz than any other inmate, 26 years to be exact. He was called creepy because he had a creepy looking face. Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, is probably the most famous inmate of the prison. Burt Lancaster famously portrayed Stroud in the movie Birdman of Alcatraz, which earned Lancaster an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. Hmm, what did Stroud do to end up in prison? Says here in 1909, he brutally murdered a bartender who had allegedly failed to pay a prostitute, for whom Stroud was pimping, in the great state of Alaska. After shooting the bartender, Stroud took the guy's wallet to make sure he and his hoe got paid. Life is hard on them streets in Alaska. 
Fun fact, Robert Stroud raised and sold birds during his time at Leavenworth Penitentiary, but when he was sent to Alcatraz, he was not allowed to keep birds. Maybe they should have called that movie The Birdman at Alcatraz and not of Alcatraz. It was thought that the frigid waters surrounding the prison made escape for prisoners damn near impossible. And during its 29 years of keeping all these ne'er-do-wells locked up, the fine folks who kept a watchful eye on all these criminals, they claimed that not one prisoner ever escaped. But that's not 100% true. Over 14 separate attempts, there were 36 prisoners who engaged in get-out-of-jail-free hijinks. Two of those men tried to escape twice. Of those 36 prisoners, 23 were caught, six were shot and killed, two drowned, and five were listed as missing and presumed drowned. One jailbreak in 1946 really went sideways and led to an event known as the Battle of Alcatraz where two Federal Bureau of Prison officials were killed. The most famous Alcatraz escape happened in 1962 by Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin. The movie Escape from Alcatraz features Clint Eastwood and his squinty eyes as Frank Morris. Officially, the FBI said that the three men are believed to have drowned in their attempt to escape but the movie suggests otherwise, and some real-life evidence showed up a few years later that suggests they actually got away. But, you know, if you get to grade your own paper when it comes to how many people escaped from your prison, my guess is that number is always going to be a big fat zero. So Alcatraz closes in 63. Why did it close? Well, because it cost too much money to house these worst-of-the-worst criminals at this island out in the San Francisco Bay. At Alcatraz, it was costing about 10 bucks a day to lock somebody up. At other prisoners, they got that cost down to $3 a day. Plus, salt water and erosion made the building less stable. And as I just pointed out, three people escaped and drowned the year prior to the prison's closure. So they shut down Alcatraz, and the next year it was occupied by some Native Americans who had a copy of the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie. This treaty said that if the U.S. had any surplus land, the Sioux could claim it. The protesters there were threatened with felonies, and with a big prison behind them as a reminder of what could happen if they didn't leave, well, the protesters left. But five years later, in 1969, the Native American protesters came back, and they stayed for almost two years. The protesters demanded that Alcatraz be modified into an Indian education and cultural center. The occupation lasted for 19 months, and it led to all kinds of damage on the island, and that certain buildings were destroyed by fires, including the lighthouse keeper's home and the warden home and after a couple of years those protesters decided to leave. In 1972 Alcatraz became a national recreation area under the management of the National Park Service. It opened as a national park attraction in the fall of 1973. Alcatraz landed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1976 and a decade later it was classified as a national historic landmark. This is a pretty big deal for landmarks. And it currently welcomes about one and a half million visitors each year, where park rangers provide guided tours and share interesting histories of the famous prison. My name is John Johnson, but everyone here calls me Vicky. Now this is something the other tour guides won't tell you. In this particular cell block, Machine Gun Kelly had what we call in the prison system a bitch. And one night, in a jealous rage, Kelly took a makeshift knife for Shiv and cut out the bitch's eyes. And as if this wasn't enough retribution for Kelly, the next day, he and four other inmates took turns pissing 
into the bitch's ocular cavities. This way to the cafeteria. Oh, Phil Hartman taken away from us all too soon. That, of course, is a clip from the Mike Myers comedy, So I Married an Axe Murderer, where he and a friend take a brief tour of Alcatraz Prison. And the prison appears in other movies, including X-Men The Last Stand, Murder in the First, The Book of Eli. I'm sure it showed up in some establishing shots for Full House and probably peeked into frame over in Mrs. Doubtfire as well. But there's only one movie with the stones to give this landmark of the federal incarceration system the credit it was due by setting almost all of the movie at Alcatraz with a character who was incarcerated at Alcatraz and even went so far as to call the movie Alcatraz. Well, they called it by its nickname. That's right, I'm talking about The Rock. In the 1990s, action movies were fueled by two things, testosterone and cocaine. There were lots of guns involved, there was some gratuitous nudity thrown in, a heap and helping of misogyny, and more often than not, cops who didn't play by the rules. And two names that showed up in front of ultraviolent super macho movies of the 1990s more than any other were the production team of Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Simpson and Bruckheimer were the producers behind Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, Days of Thunder. The Rock was essentially diehard but in a prison. But the movie has an anti-villain who is filled with somewhat noble intentions. He's just fed up at the disrespect that servicemen received who died while fighting for the United States. Don Simpson was watching a 60 Minutes interview with Colonel David H. Haxworth who was upset at how the U.S. handled soldiers returning from Vietnam through the disavowalment of covert op soldiers on foreign missions. Simpson saw this, tucked the idea away, and it ultimately found a home in The Rock. Now, the screenplay for The Rock had a lot of hands on it. David Weisberg did a spec script, Douglas Cook and Mark Rosner got final screenplay credit, names that you may not know all that well. However, Jonathan Hensley, who wrote Jumanji and Die Hard with a Vengeance, as well as Aaron Sorkin, who wrote A Few Good Men, The American President, and Quentin Tarantino, reportedly punched up the script a bit too. All of these writers were ultimately snubbed for their contributions to the screenplay, as well as the writing team that was brought in to punch up Sean Connery's dialogue. Nicolas Cage didn't get any writing credit either. He penned his own dialogue for a couple of scenes, including one where a soldier puts a gun to his head. And when I say he wrote them, he wrote them on large cue cards, and then he read them as they were being held off camera. Nicolas Cage also improvised a lot of lines in scenes as well, but doesn't get a writing credit. Nicolas Cage took the role of Stanley Goodspeed as he wanted to work with Simpson and Bruckheimer and Michael Bay. You have to remember where The Rock falls in the larger oeuvre of Nicolas Cage. He was not, and according to some, still isn't an action hero. Nicolas Cage was riding high on the success of Raising Arizona and Moonstruck. He was teaming up in romantic comedies like Leaving Las Vegas with Sarah Jessica Parker and unromantic comedies like Guarding Tess with Shirley MacLaine. He had also taken home an Oscar for playing a tragic alcoholic in Leaving Las Vegas just one year prior. Action hero material? He was not. But then The Rock showed up, which led to Con Air, which led to Face Off, and the rest is, well, action hero history. Ed Harris was pitched the role of the movie's anti-villain at Jerry Bruckheimer's house, where Ed Harris said that Jerry Bruckheimer reportedly didn't stop talking for 45 minutes straight. <laughs> Originally, Simpson and Bruckheimer wanted old pal Tony Scott to direct. Previously, these three had worked on 
Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Days of Thunder and Crimson Tide, but Tony Scott was working on The Fan, the 1996 movie starring Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes. Michael Bay was a reluctant addition to step behind the camera too. Bay had had a long history of shooting music videos and found success in his first feature film, Bad Boys, which starred Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. And it was also produced by Simpson and Bruckheimer. They reached out to Bay and he eventually came on board. Sean Connery, who is not a fan of guns or swimming in water, apparently, <laughs> I wonder why, apparently didn't read the whole script and he agreed to be in the film. And since the movie would primarily be filmed on Alcatraz Island, Sean Connery requested that a small home be built for him so that he wouldn't have to commute in and out of work each day. Man needs his rest. Also, Connery was a producer on the movie, a ka-ching. The movie was produced by Hollywood Pictures, which was a production and distribution division of the Walt Disney Company. Remember, this was during the Eisner years when things were run a little bit differently and they put out a wide range of movies for a wide range of movie-going audiences. Things got tense at one point between Michael Bay and some of the studio heads. Bay was called up for a meeting so the executives could tell him how to make his movie on the cheap. Hearing this Sean Connery, remember, he's a producer on the movie, he asked if he could accompany Bay to this meeting. Sean Connery went in and verbally slapped these executives around a bit, said Michael Bay was doing a great job and leave him the hell alone. Oh, to be a fly on the wall that day. Filming the movie at Alcatraz was Michael Bay's idea. He visited the prison and knew he had to film on location to capture everything that Alcatraz the prison had to offer. During production of The Rock, producer Don Simpson actually died due to a blend of illegal drugs in his system. Rumor has it that nobody on the crew or in the cast told the film's director, Michael Bay, during the day of shooting so that he could focus more on getting things filmed. Then, according to a director's commentary, Nicolas Cage actually let it slip and told Michael Bay that his friend and producer was dead. Lesson here, don't invite Nicolas Cage to a surprise birthday party ever. The movie was made for 75 million bucks and it pulled in a worldwide total of $335 million, ranking as the fourth highest grossing movie of 1996. Just ahead of it was the original Mission Impossible, ahead of that, Twister, and the number one movie that year, Independence Day. In 2003, a military coalition led by America and the United Kingdom invaded Iraq and overthrew director Saddam Hussein. The controversial decision was based on claims that Iraq was building weapons of mass destruction. Britain's MI6 cited intelligence reports describing deadly nerve agents being housed inside chains of glass beads. These claims inspired outrage and were mocked around the world once somebody said, hey, isn't this the plot of the movie The Rock? <laughs> Which is a complete work of fiction? Or is it because according to multiple sources, Carl, you have got to stick with facts and not conspiracy theories in these intros. Okay? Unless we review the movie Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson, which we won't, <laughs> then you can go nuts. I know you're nuts, and you can include all your crazy worldviews in that, but not here in the introduction for The Rock. All right, where were we? The world premiere of the movie was held, where else, at Alcatraz on the 3rd of June, 1996. They actually built a movie screen and set up a 35 millimeter projector so that the 500 specially invited guests, along with the press, could be ferried over to watch the movie on the big screen. 
critics genuinely liked the movie. Sweater vest aficionado and movie critic extraordinaire Roger Ebert gave the movie three and a half out of four stars, calling the film a first-rate slam-bang action thriller. It's currently got a 68% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, making it the only Michael Bay movie with a fresh rating from the illustrious Movie Judgment website. Thrillist referred to The Rock as Michael Bay's masterpiece. The Guardian claimed the movie to be an all-time great guilty pleasure, and the AV Club called it the director's one good movie. Michael Bay has said that The Rock is one of his favorite films that he's ever made, and even Sean Connery considered The Rock to be the best film he made in his last decade as an actor. But keep in mind that the last decade he had as an actor included the big screen adaptation of the British spy TV series, the Avengers, and the live-action cinematic interpretation of the comic book series The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, two movies both featured on this very podcast. So why is the season finale featuring a movie that's the one good film Michael Bay ever made? Well, because it's Die Hard in a prison, and we get to do Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage voices again. And have you ever seen Ed Harris in a military uniform? Oh, he's to die for. You know what? I'm getting all excited now. Let's quit wasting time and get Bo in here to break down this movie shot by shot, scene by scene. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wearers of wigs and hoarders of hair pieces everywhere, we're all going to jail. It's 1996 The Rock. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and I am joined, as always, with the rock to my role, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing this evening? Well, I mean, we're doing a Michael Bay movie. What could be better than that? <laughs> Not doing a Michael Bay movie? <laughs> well, I mean, that's always a, an option. Also... Who let Carl it? Like, I know we're not paying the interns anything, and the college credit is thin at best, but surely there is someone better than Carl. I don't know who's handing out writing assignments or editorial review. I'm going to talk to somebody. There's got to be somebody, like, like we're the talent. We shouldn't have to be dealing with this. Somewhere in that middle management chain is somebody that we should be able to either verbally abuse or fire over this. I've never seen a person with this many bumper stickers on the back of their car. Like, it should be illegal that you have this many bumper stickers on the back window. Not even, like, the bumper and the trunk. Yeah. It's just like the whole back is a cascade of political anarchy and just craziness. I saw it. I, I don't think he ever reverses. I don't know how he could. <laughs> but yeah, we're doing yet another Michael. Have we done? What, what are the Michael Bay movies we've done? Armageddon. I think that's it. Is that it? I think so. That's, you know, I was going to say <laughs> that was worse than this, but I don't know, man. This, all right. That was worse than this. I will stand by that. The Rock is better than Armageddon, which is like saying, hey, if you can have your pick of cancers, maybe you go with one that is responsive to treatment as opposed to the really nasty stuff. I found Armageddon more entertaining. I laughed more at Armageddon than I did at this movie. This movie didn't make me laugh. Well, there was one, there's one joke, and I'll point it out that made me laugh, but it's from a throwaway character. As per usual... I'm going to be the Nicolas Cage apologist here, where anytime he is on screen, I don't think what he's doing is necessarily good work. It's not. But it's interesting. 
Like, he has some deliveries that are truly head-scratching. For my money, just hearing him say, I'm a Beatle maniac! Ugh. <laughs> it's so dumb. I really Let's love it. Let's not waste any more time. Our movie starts off and we see Ed Harris, who plays a brigadier general by the name of Francis Hummel. He's a former Marine and he's smoking a cigar and he's thinking about his time in battle as part of the U.S. military. And we hear voiceover that says, we're taking too much air fire. We can't hold on much longer. Then we see a military funeral, a flag draped coffin. And then we get to see all of our movie stars names pop up on the screen. Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, Ed Harris. And then the title of the movie just scares the shit out of you the rock bam in this big block font that's full of red and black fire yeah the jingoism is right up front in this movie <laughs> and it's one of the things i i dislike most about michael bay films i think is that kind of knee-jerk nationalism although i think this movie is kind of interesting in his oeuvre in that it does not just immediately side with the institutions it's much more about the individual, not you know, like I've got my essay prepared for <laughs> what is the rock really about when it comes to institutionalism versus individualism. I thought it was going to be titled Ed Harris, colon, not a bad guy in the rock. <laughs> well, that's the subtitle. You know, as with any dissertation, Chad, there are about 15 colons couple of subcolons an or comma so when you're doing this upfront thing it's that typical you know kind of action movie of this era where you're seeing like you said you're hearing all the commentary from guys left behind enemy lines and you're seeing the coffin and you're seeing ed harris get ready it's that kind of die hard two we're gonna cut back and forth between this and this other thing and this other thing yeah but ed harris has all of his clothes on and he's not doing tai chi at a best western what i wouldn't give for a scene of ed harris going balls out in front of a mirror we do hear ed harris give a little voiceover where he says don't worry i won't let you die on the battlefield and then it's like like we don't have authorization to go behind enemy lines he's like god damn it get in there and save my men and this whole time he's smoking a cigar and he's putting on his dog tags and then we hear another voiceover that says they're not coming for us, are they, General Ed Harris? And then there's more shots of the military funeral. Uh, and then the voiceover shift to where we hear General Ed Harris saying, Members of Congress and the esteemed members of the Special Armed Services Committee, I come to protest a grave injustice. And then we see Ed Harris putting on his dress blues and he takes off his wedding ring. And then Ed Harris just walks through the rain. That's the worst kind of funeral, Bo, when it's in the rain. It's certainly the most depressing and uncomfortable <laughs> for, for everyone involved. It's the most inconvenient. Yeah, there's nothing worse than going to a funeral where, A, it's raining, and also there's no food. What is that about? <laughs> the one thing I will credit Ed Harris was saying in the upfront of this movie that I totally agree with is when he tells some member of the Armed Services Committee, it has to stop. And I was like, if only, if only I could hit the stop button at the five minute mark, how happy we'd all be. I saw uh, that someone online was advertising that you could pay them a couple hundred bucks and that they would go to a funeral dressed all in black and stand like 150 feet away from everybody else. Just to add an air of mystery to it? Correct. Oh, I, I kind of like that as a business model. I'm wondering, how do I get in on this? 
Would my local community support such a business? I don't know. Put up some flyers over at Panera Bread or down at the used bookstore. <laughs> that all sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I also, I like the fact that Ed Harris is going, to, he's going to his wife's grave, if we haven't said this, you know, all dressed up in his blues and, and whatnot. And he says, Margaret, I miss you, but I couldn't do this when you were alive because you would have been horribly ashamed of me. <laughs> But now that you're dead, I'm doing all kinds of crazy shit. This is number one, but I've got a long list of stuff that I'm going to do now that the ring is off. I'm <laughs> going to Thailand. Right. Like, I'm about to be a millionaire in a non-extradition country and single. And I'm a war hero? Forget about it. <laughs> he leaves this Medal of Honor on his wife's grave and he gives it a kiss and he goes off to start the movie. We cut to a Navy weapons depot at night and it's still raining. And then a couple dozen men with weapons, they rush in and they take up their positions around all the barbed wire fencing. And then a car pulls up and the driver says, tell him General Ed Harris is here to perform a surprise inspection. They're like, sir, yes, sir. So they just let him in. Apparently, you know, Ed Harris is a big deal. He can just show up and inspect whenever he wants. And then all of these mercenaries start ziplining in and they crash through the windows of a watchtower. And then you see a couple of stuntmen smashed to the ground. Then a few other stuntmen, they get tossed out of these newly crashed open window by, I think, some military men that were inside the watchtower. We learned that they're using tranquilizers, essentially tranquilizer guns. Well, you can tell that by the sound because when they shoot them, it goes... It's not the bang bangs. Yeah. And they pull one guy out and just give it to him right in the neck, which I understand we're trying to do non-lethal tactics here, but you shoot somebody directly in the neck like that with a tranquilizer <laughs> gun. They're... It's coming out the other side. Right. I'm not sure they they wake up from that one little nap. <laughs> but also David Morse shows up in this movie, who is an actor we haven't talked about a ton on this show, but who's a wonderful actor. If you might best remember him as... Tom Hanks's guard buddy in the Green Mile. Yeah. In this one, he plays number two, Major Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is Major Tom to Ed Harris. All the gods are knocked out. He was in 12 Monkeys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very good he at He was that. in 12 Monkeys. He played a guard there. So he's got lots of prison experience. Maybe that's why they chose him for this role. I would love it if at some point he just detailed to Ed Harris about his time working in Mouseville. But yeah, so there, all these people are after a big stockpile of rockets armed with weapons-grade O-ethyl-methyl-phosphonothoic acid. You got, there you go, good job, yeah. Which is more commonly known as VX gas, which is really a thing, although it doesn't do what it does in this movie, which is kind of a make up but it is a, you know, kind of a nasty way to die. You just don't turn into, you know, the dude from RoboCop that gets splattered by the car in the process of it. When they find this poison, it's contained in these green orbs that are the size of what, like tennis balls, maybe? A little yeah. smaller, like an egg? I don't know. It's a pearl configuration! <laughs> so... In all of this haste they're running around, somebody drops one of these green glass balls and number two, Major Tom, he screams out, everybody evacuate! So they slam the door, leaving the guy who dropped the glass ball filled with the angel of death juice all by himself. And then through this little peekadoo window, number two, Major Tom, he watches 
as the klutz of the company has his skin just turn into goo and bubbles as he screams in pain through this little peekaboo window. Number two, Major Tom just gives him a, I'm sorry, you poor bastard. Your face is looking bubbly today. Now we know what happens when you break one of these little green balls. Uh, you're going to die and it's going to be off. Don't worry, some other people are going to tell you about it later, so this scene <laughs> is good, but unnecessary, ultimately, which is kind of the story of The Rock. General Ed Harris and all of his mercenaries, who do not have their skin melted off by chemical weaponry, they leave easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. Off they go. Cut to FBI Laboratory, Washington, D.C., where we meet Special Agent Nicholas Cage as he fires a rubber-tipped dart at a small target that sets off this low-stakes Rube Goldberg machine that ends with a hula dancer dashboard ornament being set on fire with a Bunsen burner. And by the way, they bet like five bucks on this and Nicolas Cage won, I guess. Then they're interrupted because somebody brings in a package. Uh huh addressed to Nicolas Cage and he opens it up and it's like a plastic wrapped copy of Meet the Beatles. Yes, here she is. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. You are the best. His buddy is like, why are you having packages delivered here instead of your home? And he says, well, first of all, my girlfriend doesn't like me spending $600 on Beatles records. Yeah, no shit. That's stupid. <laughs> Why would you do that instead of buying a CD, uh, you know, which was what you did at the time that The Rock was uh, <laughs> was filmed? And he says, one, because I'm a Beatle maniac. Two, because it sounds better on vinyl than it does on your stupid CDs. I like it with all those pops and scratches and shit. I'm pretty much a pretentious asshole. I was into vinyl before it was annoying. If I could grow a man bun, you bet your bippy I'd have one, mister. Talking about the Beatles and how much I love them is a quirky thing that helps to defy my character, but does not pay off in this movie later one bit. Not even in the next scene when he goes home. We'll talk about when we get there, but at no other point in the movie does anyone talk about the Beatles ever. Uh-uh. I thought he was going to be making references to the Beatles and you're the Yoko and I'm the walrus. None of that. Just anything. Like if, if Heinrich Ibsen taught us nothing, it is that <laughs> you don't bring up the Beatles. And this is a direct quote from Ibsen. You don't bring up the Beatles unless that's going to be a big deal in your movie. We cut to an alarm going off and everybody that we just met at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. is dashing down the stairs as they get to a lab and some other scientists nearby says, a dog got a whiff of this wooden box at the airport. It came from a Serbian refugee camp. It could either be detergent or it might be sarin gas. That's a pretty big bell curve, my man. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of wiggle room in that book ending. So they go downstairs and it's Isherwood, who is sort of a trainee, I think. Uh huh. Nicholas Cage donned these, you know, outbreak suits to go into this room with this box and they open it up. But they carry with them a box of live cockroaches because they're like the insect canaries in the coal mine. Oh, right. <laughs> I forgot about that. They open up this box. And inside is some porn right up top. There's some dirty magazines in here. Kinky. There's a gas mask. That is not a good sign. One of the titles of the magazines that Nicolas Cage points out is Stone Age Cave Girls in the Raw. I don't know if it's a real magazine, but it ought to be. <laughs> About this time, Isherwood, he pulls out a baby doll and he does this hacky Jeff Dunham routine. Hey there, Nicolas Cage. I'm... 
Tammy Craps, you must weigh 60 pounds to play with me. <laughs> and the doll's eyes open and it sprays sarin gas out of its mouth all over Nicolas Cage, who proceeds to cut open the shirt of this doll, re- revealing, as our movie's hero puts it, there's enough C4 and sarin gas in here to blow up this whole building. There's wires sticking out and shit. For a while, I was like, is the Joker going to show up <laughs> and be part of our movie? That would be pretty good. These cockroaches start exploding like popcorn in this <laughs> container as the sarin gas like fills the room. And then it just turns into chaos where they're like, you know, Nicolas Cage, you need to stab yourself in the heart with that thing we gave you that's anti-sarin gas because it's melting through your gloves and face mask. And the other dude is starting to melt. And he's like, I'm not going to stab myself in the heart with this thing. Nicolas Cage is like, where are my sprinklers? I need some sprinklers. They're like, ah, that's, did we forget to pay the water bill? There might be a clog in the line. Tony, you're on the hose. You got to kink. Get the kink out of the hose. Tony, you idiot. And then the water starts to spray. And then there's the bomb that's inside this baby doll with C4 and sarin gas has a countdown timer on it. None of this is very thrilling because you know it's not going to blow up and kill everybody at the beginning of our movie. Uh, how ballsy would it have been, though, if Nicolas Cage died in the first seven minutes of the film? That would have been something. Speaking of ballsy. Yeah. Let's cut to Nicolas Cage after having saved the day Mm -hmm. uh, at his home where he is nude in a chair playing a guitar, which is how I guess Nicolas Cage spends most evenings. Mm. And it's really the male version of Jenny Gump. Dude, the music that is playing, I refer to in my notes as next to the Beatles because it's not a Beatles song. But if you're not paying too close of attention, you might think it is. It's the Buggles. (laughs) right yeah and he's playing the 600 hundred dollar album he just bought well that would have a song that you recognize chad also i I would be at fault for not mentioning that nicholas cage's hairpiece in this movie is exquisite between nicholas cage and sean connery the budget line item for advanced hair care and 24 hour uncle stylist easily hit the high mid six figure. Oh, it's glorious. Both of them. I like that Sean Connery later in the movie just puts on a knit cap. He's like, I fucking. I'm not going to spend all goddamn morning in a chair with somebody knitting together some horse hair into mine. So, <laughs> so his girlfriend, Carla, comes home. And she's like, hey, uh, Nicolas Cage, how was your day? And he goes, well, I'm home a little early. I guess you might wonder why. Well, I was disarming a bomb that a bunch of Bosnians sent to a bunch of Serbians or vice versa. All I can think of, honey, is that if you had a kid in today's world, you'd be a real selfish prick. I just couldn't imagine it. In fact, if I had a girlfriend that was pregnant, I'd shove her out a window or maybe punch her in the stomach repeatedly. What was your news that you wanted to share with me? And also, thank you for not commenting on the fact that I'm nude playing the guitar in the middle of the afternoon. Just like Jenny Gump. Carla, the girlfriend, she says, ah. Uh, Yeah, so I'm pregnant. Look, you didn't mean all that stuff you just said about how having a kid is an act of cruelty. And Nicholas Cage says, yeah, I'm in it, but not now. I'm in it a moment ago. A lot has happened between eight seconds ago and now. Wait a minute. We're not even married. How can you be pregnant? (laughs) Yeah, that's another thing. Like, Nicholas Cage definitely does not wear condoms in this movie. I just don't like the feeling. He doesn't wear clothes, man. I do like his delivery here. Like you, you mentioned the line, but when she says, what about all that stuff you said about not wanting to have a kid? And he was like, well, that was seven seconds ago. And he goes, 
well, gosh, honey, a lot's happened since then. It's good Nicolas Cage. There's some really rotten Nicolas Cage in this movie, but that's pretty good Nicolas Cage. Claire, the girlfriend, says, yeah, so we got to get married. All right, you love me, right? Then put a ring on this finger before it gets all swole up, you know, while this bun starts baking in the oven. If you're not going to propose to me right now, then look, I'm going to propose to you. Nicolas Cage, will you marry me? Cut away, just as she proposes, to Alcatraz Prison, where we see... Vicky. General Ed Harris. And number two, Major Tom, as part of a larger group as they go through this tour of the prison and here we meet park ranger bob for a little comic relief who says welcome to the rock in the history of the rock there were 14 attempts but nobody ever successfully got off the rock alive that is keep it moving keep it moving and this guy playing this park ranger bob is character actor raymond o'connor who i'm guessing was the understudy for joe pesci in every non-scorsese directed <laughs> movie that pesci ever appeared in and i'm referring to your gone fishings you're the supers my cousin Vinny's. that class of cinema beau uh, yeah, that all tracks. Uh, I do like it this scene, though, that Ed Harris sees a couple of little girls with a school group. Uh-huh. And he's just like, hey, there are little girls. Can you go up to your teacher and tell her to get you off this island right now? Because some really rough shit's about to happen. Do you think these little girls went over to their teacher and said, excuse me, Miss Simmons, that man over there who somehow gets more handsome the balder he gets um, said that we should leave that he's going to do some terrible bad things. And she's like, well, girls, thank you so much. Let's leave and not tell anyone about this. I think that originally they went over to her and were like, that man over there with the startling blue eyes wants us to get off this island. And the teacher was like, he does, does he? Ooh, a man. The little girls go back to him. They're like, yeah, that didn't work. But I think if you wanted her number, you could get it. And he's like, well, I am single now. No, no, no. It's too too early for that. I need a, a little morning time. But uh, girls, do this. Tell, Go back to her. Don't tell her that something bad's going to happen. Tell her that you both just shit your pants. and maybe she'll take you home okay and if you gotta do it if you gotta squeeze one out i I highly recommend you do so because things are about to get rough here way worse than shitting your pants and even though from now on you're gonna be known as poo poo paula when in class for like the next three to four years that's still better than what's about to happen my name's susan all right you're gonna be known as shitty stink susan they're, they're going to find a way to tie your name to the fact that you shit yourself. Doo-doo Diane, Boom Boom Betty, whatever it is. They're going to find a way to, to make you forever and ever be known as the girl who shit her pants at Alcatraz. Get out of here! Through the course of the tour, Ranger Bob has everybody get in a cell and he closes the door and he's like, and that's what it's like to be a prisoner here at the Rock. And then Ed Harris and number two, Major Tom, they walk up behind him with some mercenaries and... And Ranger Bob turns around. And he's like, hey, so uh, what's the matter, fellas? Something wrong with the tour? And then Ed Harris says, look into my beautiful pools of blue. <laughs> my eyes. The tour's over, Bobby. And then we cut to these two silhouetted black helicopters flying over some water. But then we immediately cut back to the prison cells in Alcatraz, where we see a black man standing next to his girlfriend or wife. And they're in a cell with an elderly Asian couple. And this black man screams out, what kind of fucked up tour is this? It's also a great example of the casual racism of 90s era movies, (laughs) because almost every film you have a black character like this 
Independence Day does it. Well, they made three Rush Hour movies that are wrapped around that premise, Bo. No, no, no. I'm not talking about a major character. It's just a cutaway to a black dude and or woman. Because there's a woman that, it, like, right after this. And it's just like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we had a black person in our movie saying this crazy thing? The black lady's in the cell with Ranger Bob. And he's like, hey, he's like, hey look, lady, I don't care again. Okay, okay, okay. And she, and she says, I, you don't have a gun. I have a gun. If I knew this was going to happen, I'd have brought my motherfucking gun. It's the last time we see either of these characters or Ranger Bob in the movie. Presumably they die in the end. I I would assume so. I'm not believing any of that shit that they all survived. I'm just getting yeah. ahead of myself. But Nicholas Cage is being wildly optimistic. So Ed Harris, like all uh, a bunch of other Marines show up. Ed Harris is there and uh-huh. we have this guy named, I'm going to call him Captain Newbie. He's like uh-huh. this this other mercenary. And also, there's uh, Mercenary Candyman. Because mm-hmm. this guy's played by Tony Todd, who was the Candyman. In that, that, and that film came out four years before this movie comes out. How do you cast the Candyman in a movie like this? And I get they pivot and really make him the real, real bad guy. Mm. But it's, it's off-putting. He's great. I love Tony Todd, and I love him as the guy that just desperately wants to murder someone in this movie he is just <laughs> chomping at the bit yeah to see blood spilled ed harris and his team they set up their command center in the rock and there's lots of guns and communication equipment and they set up some rockets that are filled with tubes of those green glass poison balls then a mercenary played by john c mcginley who Yubo mm-hmm. told me was on Scrubs, but I never watched that show. I know him as the titular Stan in the FX show, Stan Against Evil. So Mercenary McGinley um, has invented a whole new device. He points out, sir, we have a possible entry point in the showers, but I got these anti-tribbler devices. The little beauty head fakes them with laser beams, and if they come any closer, we really get them. And I was like, why not just put a big brick on top of this manhole-sized shower drain? Problem solved. Sometimes low-tech's better than high-tech, Bo. <laughs> yeah, you know, a bunch of light bulbs that you would bust. Uh, Yeah, so he puts his little trembler device in the shower room, and then Ed Harris kind of addresses all the prisoners. He, like, mm. fires off a shot to shut everybody up ladies and gentlemen it is me general ed harris a man who exudes sexiness in that patrick stewart kind of way you are being detained here against your will for that i apologize you will not be detained any longer than necessary you will not be hurt we will collect all of your names and addresses and send you a gift once you return home possibly some flowers or maybe a cookie bouquet when he gets done talking to them Uh he's just not quite finished speechifying no he goes and he gives a little pep talk to his boys yeah so he explains his plan to the people one presumes know the plan because they have been hired to do this but you know we're the audience and we don't know yet he basically says you know men a lot of you have uh i'm meeting for the first time today but you've done an excellent job some of you i've worked with since tet back in 68 but this is the end of a long and distinguished career for all of us because while we plan to be seen by history as patriots what we really are is a bunch of terrorists so we're going to each get a million dollars and then go to a non-extradition country at the end of this. Yeah. And he says, I'm all done with the lies, he says, for his recon team being killed and denied by the government. He points out, Captain Newbie and you, Captain Candyman, I've never worked with you before, but I'm sure you're 100% trustworthy and will in no way turn on me later in the movie. 
And then he goes into this rationale of what we are doing is a crime punishable by death. And you know who else was called a traitor by the British? Maybe some people you know by the name of Washington, Jefferson, and Adams. But now they're patriots. Heard of them? The calendar behind him says January 5th. And you're like, oh boy. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Uh, We cut to uh, a guy named John Spencer is the actor's name. He was a a terrific actor who was on uh, the West Wing for a number of years, played Leo on the West Wing. In this movie, he is uh, FBI director Womack. Yeah. We're in Washington, D.C. and it's 740 at night. And the phone rings, and apparently he's just the last one there turn off the lights, make sure the trash <laughs> bins are set up for the cleaning crew. And he picks up the phone, and he's like, hello, FBI, no crime is too big, no crime is too small. The FBI, we handle them all. How can I direct your call? And Harris tells him, listen, FBI Director Womack, I have now taken 81, I say again, 81 hostages. Hold on, I gotta get a pen to write this down. Oh boy, okay. All right, what was your name? Uh, It's Ed Harris. Oh, I got E-D. Is that one or two Her- R's? Harris. It's two words. It's a one- Ed Harris. Got, all right, Ed. How many people have you ever known named Ed Harris? Two R's or one R in Harris? It doesn't matter. Two, but right. it doesn't I'm gonna matter. I'm going to put two and I'll scratch one out if I don't need it later. All right. All right so how, I've got 80. How many 80... civilians do you need? 81. I say again, 81. Uh, it's going to be tough to get 81 civilians for you, Mr. Harris. This lady. No, night. I've got 81 civilians. Oh, you have the civilians. I, I do. And All that's right. why I'm calling you to tell you that I've got them along with, oh boy, 15 VX rockets. Ooh, that's a lot of rockets. And you have that many? Yeah. Did you hear the VX part? I did. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to basically kill everyone in San Francisco with these VX rockets. Is that San Francisco, California? Yeah, yeah it is San Francisco, California. Along with all the hostages that I've taken, if you don't meet my demands. So I'm going to call back at midnight and I want you to assemble everyone. And let me tell you right now, I'm not going to take a no from someone who can't give me a yes. So get the right people and then I'm going to call back. All right. I think I got everything down that I need. You got 81 civilians. You got 15 rockets. Mm -hmm. You're in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and you're going to call back at midnight. That's right. All right. You know, it sounds like you got your act together. Let me see what I can do on my side. All right. Good okay. talking to you, buddy. You too. Right, Talk bye-bye. to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And then some knucklehead comes in. It was like, hey, uh, what are you still doing here, Director Womack? And he says, uh, boy, the rock has just been reopened. They got rockets and they got bombs and all kinds. Oh, they got civilians and it's going to be a mess. You got to call some people. I don't know how the phones work around here. Do I dial nine to get out? I really failed my way forward through my entire career. We cut over to the Pentagon where Uh we're getting some background on Ed Harris about like, oh, he was this guy in uh, Vietnam, which, by the way, is a still they take from a movie he was in, (laughs) which is pretty funny. It's a bunch of bad mid 90s Photoshop. Someone says, well, this guy's a hero. And the replies, well, more like a legend. So Ed Harris is a super cool guy. We all agree to that. But he's apparently flipped his lid. And sure enough, at midnight, he ring, calls. Ring, ring. ring. And so be, Hello, Pentagon. It's me, Director Womack. 
Yeah, it's it's Ed Harris again. Oh, hey, this everybody. This was the guy I was talking to earlier. Hold on. I'm going to put you on speakerphone so you can talk to everybody. Everybody, okay. Ed. Okay. Ed, everybody. All right, here we go. Tell them what you're up to. Yeah, so I'm going to launch these VX rockets against the population of San Francisco unless the government pays ransom and reparations to the families of Marines who died on these illegal clandestine Marine Force recon missions that were commanded by me. He does say... 84 of my men were killed in missions across China and Europe and other places. And then this new character, Secretary of State Sinclair, who's a comparatively younger man than everyone in the room, he just leans it, we never sent troops to China? And then Ed Harris flips out, who the hell said that? (laughs) I was reading a speech that I've been working on for two weeks and you ruined it. I demand to know what big mouth said that uh it's chief of staff sinclair uh yeah i i was just saying we didn't shut up go sinclair th- these men who died for our country they never got their benefits or their military funerals you will transfer 100 million dollars from these top secret slush fund accounts that i know all about and you're going to give a million dollars to each of the 83 families of these dead soldiers and the rest i'm going to give out to all of my team of mercenaries you got 40 hours till noon tomorrow to do all that stuff i just said tango tango click which the head guy at the pentagon his name's al he should have just said uh okay hundred million dollars done yeah that isn't even a rounding error in the defense budget which at this time is around 300 billion with a b billion dollars the amount of money that they spend trying to combat this operation far exceeds the ransom that they could have paid which isn't really even a ransom it's like yeah he's got a good point there's an element of blackmail to it but hey What's a little blackmail between friends, right? <laughs> and Womack, meanwhile, is like, we got to keep all this under wraps. Oh, my God. First things first, fellas. We got to contact the family members of these people being held hostage in Alcatraz out in California. This gets out. Hey, the San Francisco area is going to be in chaos. And you're like, this is a movie that exists in a world without cell phones. One of my favorite moments in this movie is because uh, Chief of Staff Sinclair has already been kind of verbally slapped around by Ed Harris. Uh-huh. He then asks, okay, let's just say he fires these rockets. Mm-hmm. How many people would end up dying? And one of the army dudes goes, well, 60 or 70. And he goes, well, that's not that bad. Thousand! 60 or 7,000 people, you maggot! Right, what a terrible setup. Like, why didn't you say that? There's no reason to goad him into looking like a jackass after just looking like a jackass. How many dollars do you have in your pocket? I don't know, one or two million? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway, then somebody explains how terrible the gas is again because they didn't see the scene earlier in the movie. Right. Why do the bad guys in this movie even need hostages? Aren't all of the unaware citizens of San Francisco the real hostages in this situation? I think the idea is that when they're taking uh, helicopters off of the island to get away, Uh that the hostages will prevent the government from shooting them down. Well, why even do this at a single location on a prison out in the water? Why not set these rockets up all over San Francisco or hell, different locations across the United States? Set up multiple cities, multiple targets. Well, because it's not a very good movie, Chad. <laughs> It'd be called The Country. Various locations around the country starring <laughs> Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Womack is like, oh boy, let, hey, let, let me just ask you this. What kind of countermeasures can we use against all this VX gas nonsense? You can use thermite plasma. That would probably help out some. 
Oh, that sounds good. Can we get a bunch of airplanes filled with that plasma stuff you're talking about? And we'll just drop it on Alcatraz. Yeah, we don't have enough. It's not ready. And Ed Harris knows it's not ready, and that's why he used the VX gas. Because we don't we don't have a good countermeasure against it. Ah, raspberries. Yeah, but one of the generals is like, well, what whatever we got, let's get moving on that anyway. Yeah, do what that guy said. That was my idea. He just said it first. Also, we should bring in our best SEAL commander. Oh, I love SEALs. Art, art, art. And then they ask Womack, who's your best biological chemical threat guy? Yeah, who's that? From the FBI. What he said, I was going to say that first. No, I'm asking you, who was the best guy? Oh, in your- that was to me? Yes. I thought you were asking the whole group. Um, It's probably going to be... Uh, it's names on the tip of my tongue. Anybody? You know the guy that he's talking about, right, fellas? I don't know. That it's no, your... Everybody knows who he's talking about. The guy who's so good with the chemicals. The guy, what's his name? <laughs> That's what we're asking for. Yeah, I don't know his name. You need to tell me the name of who's really... Yeah, but all you guys here, you're all Pentagon smart guys. You know the guy he's talking about. The guy who's the guy who's kind of tall, but he's kind of short. He had a birthday. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Nicholas Cage. Yeah, Nicholas Cage. That guy. The guy he just said. That's what we need to get. Cut to Nicolas Cage and his girlfriend, Carla, fucking on the roof of their apartment. <laughs> because at least she can't get pregnant at this point, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that works. They're surrounded by candles and these hanging paper lanterns. And she's wearing angel wings. And surprisingly, she has her bra on. And her hair is in pigtails. And she asks Nicolas Cage, do you like my pigtails? And Nicolas Cage responds, yeah, they're naughty. Naughty, naughty. That's not exactly how he says it, Chad, because it's more of a naughty. They're very naughty. And he caps it off with just the amaretto cream with peach sorbet persuasion. How did he and Gary Busey not team up in a movie together? That I would see. You know, this is breaking news here on Pick 6 Movies. There was an interview that he recently did because Nicolas Cage is about to be Dracula in a movie. Yeah, I saw that. And that'll be good the one thing he said he uh when people were talking to him because he's had a bit of a career resurgence largely based on movies like mandy and pig and stuff like that where he's really really good in those movies but yeah when they were interviewing him somebody asked him like what is the biggest misconception of your career and he says even in all those shitty movies i was in i never phoned it in i always did my best Really? I don't know that I disagree with it. Like, I, I've, I've seen a lot of crappy Nicolas Cage movies, and he's kind of going for it just about every time I've seen one. And I'm, like, I'm not the biggest Nicolas Cage fan of the world, where I've seen every nook and cranny of his tax years when he was right. in, just in every movie that would say yes to him. But for better or worse, he goes for it. The phone rings, Nicolas Cage picks it up, and much to the protest of his pregnant girlfriend, who is still straddling him, Nicolas Cage says, what? Yes. No. I'll be down in 10 minutes. And he hangs up and says, I have to go to San Francisco. And his pregnant girlfriend, she gets all angry and that he's going to leave her. And then the music changes to acoustic guitar to change the mood. And this is where Nicolas Cage leans in and he says, I will marry you. But this is all happening so fast. Why don't you come to San Francisco with me, order some champagne, and we'll finish what we started. Which, it should be noted, there are two wine glasses behind them and a mostly empty bottle of Merlot. And now they're going to Frisco to celebrate with more booze? (laughs) Good luck, you two crazy kids, raising what will probably be another crazy kid. Certainly underdeveloped. 
but Michael Bean shows up in our movie. I guess listeners might best know as being Kyle Reese from Terminator. The military character in every movie. Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss. Uh, you're right. He is pretty much just the army guy. He's addressing all the Pentagon folks, and he's like, look, we can't do a frontal assault, so we're going to have to go under the prison via tunnels. Unfortunately, these blueprints you gave me are useless because the rock has been ripped up a bunch of times, and it's basically, a, and this is a quote, a maze of shit down there, which is a pretty good phrase. <laughs> and then, for no good reason, Philip Baker Hall is in this movie? In the, in the IMDb credits, he's listed as the Chief Justice in this film and it also says that he's uncredited for, if you don't know who he is for seinfeld fans he was the library police officer he was also in boogie nights and magnolia he was in all three of those rush hour movies i just talked about and in that amityville horror remake with ryan reynolds he was the priest put a pin in that one dear listeners <laughs> yeah uh, one of the, his best roles that doesn't it was a small one but in that movie, The Contender with Joan Allen, uh -huh. uh, he plays her dad and is, is really fantastic. If you it. still don't know who he is, imagine if the Blue Fairy from Pinocchio granted Droopy Dog's wish to be a real old man. And then that's what you get with your Philip Baker Hall. But he's a tremendous actor, yeah. though. And he's like, no, boy, is there somebody that can help get <laughs> you and your boys into the prison? Wait, you don't mean... We're not talking about on say honorary. How do you say it in Pig Latin? Sean K. Honorary. Sean Connery. Don't say it too loud. I'll tell you what. Let's go out into the hallway and we can have a talk about this. Yeah, these two go out in the hallway and there's one of those movie conversations where he's like, no, no, no way. We did something shady 33 years ago and now it's coming back to bite us in the ass. There's no way. We, this guy doesn't exist. All right. He's a ghost. All right. But he does exist. No, no, he doesn't. And uh, if we can save some lives, we should do it. All right, we'll do it. But tell everybody it was my idea. Unless it's shitty and it goes bad, then it's your idea. Cut to a shaggy Sean Connery. Yeah, cosplaying Gandalf the Great. Boy, that's a sore spot. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that bit of trivia, but, you know, he famously turned down <laughs> the role of Gandalf, which cost him about... An estimated $450 million. Did you see what books he was reading in his prison cell? Oh, The Art of War, which we uh, last saw in Passenger 57, yeah. How about you give me that the copy of your book? You're not going to be reading anything with that hot little Marty oh, on baby, your own. you know, I would give it to you, but I've got all my little notes on the margins. Yes, you're right. I don't want to read someone else's ideas of The Art of War. I like Sun Shu. It's like borrowing someone else's pornographic magazine. You don't know where it's been. Well, you do know where it's been, but you don't want to touch it, which you kind of do. I guess I should just be upfront. I do leave a lot of notes in pornography. <laughs> we get to an airplane <laughs> hangar at night and it's raining outside. <laughs> and FBI Director Womack, he welcomes Nicolas Cage. Hey, it's you, Nicolas Cage. And he's like, it's, it's Nicolas Cage. That's what I said. And he comes in, and at this point, Nicolas Cage has turned into this stumbling goofball. In the earlier scene where he's defusing the baby doll bomb, he's cool under pressure. He plays guitars naked. He has this, you know, super hot, now pregnant girlfriend that he has sex with on an outdoor patio. But at this point in the movie, he goes from being his version of Superman to being Clark Kent. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Womack says to Nicolas Cage, hey, what do you know about VX gas? And Nicolas Cage says, it's terrible, sir. It's one of those things we wish we could disinvent. 
this isn't a training exercise, is it? And Womack says, no, sorry, buddy. This isn't training at all. It's the real deal. All right. The next day we're in San Francisco. We see wide shots of the rock. Are those hostages still in their cells? I assume that much like Bonnie Bedelia and Die Hard, that Ranger Bob was like, hey, you guys, we're going to definitely need to be taken to the bathrooms by ones and twos. (laughs) Hey, hey, okay, okay. (laughs) These are not working toilets, okay? Okay. They don't work. But you know what? They'll hold whatever you got. All right. They they cut to the black dude who's like, this is some fucked up bathrooms. (laughs) So it's the next morning, or maybe it's mid-afternoon, we don't really know, and Nicolas Cage and FBI director, they show up at the West Coast FBI headquarters where Nicolas Cage meets Special Agent Paxton, played by William Forsythe, who almost a decade earlier played Evel in Raising Arizona with John Goodman, who was Gale. These awful good cereal flakes, Miss Madonna. Hear that? We're going to use code names. William Forsythe is another one of those character actors that I dearly love. He he shows up in all kinds of stuff, and he's generally really good. He tends to disappear in his characters. He's one of those people that is like a bit of a chameleon. Mm-hmm. So they bring in Sean Connery into this interrogation room, and William Forsythe is sent in to offer Sean Connery a full pardon for his help, uh-huh. while Nicolas Cage and FBI Director Womack are going to watch from behind this two-way mirror. Agent Paxton comes in. He says, listen up, Sean Connery. We need you to tell us how to get out of Alcatraz right now. And Sean Connery is using all of these kind of literary and political illusions. Like, well, if you're going to offer me a chance to get out of here like Nelson Mandela, maybe I'm going to run for president. I feel like Archimedes, who was falsely imprisoned by his king in ancient Greece, or Sir Walter Raleigh, who suffered the same fate. You know, someone as bright as you might have noticed a pattern here. And I'm like, this isn't a pattern. You just said what they do. What about Alexander Solzhenitsyn? How about that one? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of Reuben Hurricane Carter? Bob Dylan wrote a song about him, huh? Maybe Otis the Drunk on the Andy Griffith show? Mojo Nixon wrote a song about him. It was called Take Me to Your Leader. It was on the delightful album Gadzooks. Perhaps you were a fan of Mr. Nixon. Hmm? His partner, Mr. Skid Roper. It is the mid-90s after all. Paxson says... Look, we got a hostage situation on Alca all, uh, on Alcatraz. Oh shit! Yeah, and he's like, "Wait a second, you telling me it's a tourist destination Jesus now?" Jesus Christ! What a load of horse shit! Best I thought it would be a, a, a whorehouse, you know. I was hoping for a brothel. God knows, I certainly popped <laughs> off a couple of times while I was in there. I'll consider you off, but I want to get a suite at the Fairmont Hotel. Paxton, he tosses a quarter at Sean Connery. Why does he throw him a quarter? He says, call your lawyer. You're going back to jail. Putting these cuffs, I can't call my lawyer, you jackass. Look, I'm being held without a lawyer to begin with. This is all a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) Womack uh, is on the other side of this mirror with Nicolas Cage. He's like, oh boy, we're not getting anywhere with this guy. Nicolas Cage, you go in there and tell this guy a bunch of lies. All right, we got 24 hours to get inside Alcatraz. Go talk to him. To your point, he walks in like... He has the braid of a chicken where he's like, I'm with the FB, I mean, Federal Bureau of, oh, I knew this before I came in here. I'm Stanley Goodspeed. (laughs) Sean Connery goes, but of course you are, young man. Why don't you have a sheet? So he sits down and Sean Connery says, how about a cup of coffee? Nicholas Cage says, no, thanks. I'm all right. Plus, I'm a little jittery. No, you dumb son of a bitch. I meant for me. I was just about to ask that. Hey, get this man some coffee. He hands him this deal. He's like, look, we'll let you out. You're a free man if you just help us with this Alcatraz kerfuffle. Sean Connery (laughs) says something in Latin under his breath. And Nicolas Cage says, 
Oh, that means beware of Greeks. Even when they bring gifts, I went to college. And so Connery ends up signing the deal and he says, well, now I want to go to my hotel room. I want to, I want to shit. I want to shower and I want to shave. Nicholas Cage is like, Hey, look, I don't mean to be rude, but you might want a haircut too. You look like a guitarist from Seattle. And he goes, what the hell are you talking about, you crazy ass? And he's like, no, no, it's a grunge thing. It's a compliment, but you need a haircut. Nicholas Cage takes the signed deal, goes back to Womack, who is like, hey, did he sign the back of that Chinese takeout menu I gave you? Give it to me. Rip, 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 rip. Ha ha. You did a great job lying to him. USA, USA. Take him to the hotel, but just give him two hours and seal him off. And while they're talking, Sean Connery is just stalking towards the mirror. Well, he reaches down and he picks up the quarter and he actually smashes it with the front leg of the chair, which I guess makes it sharp and pointy like a diamond. One assumes. And he goes over to the two-way mirror, draws a big circle, smashes his elbow through it, and then just peeks his head like through this opening like he's Jack Nicholson. The one line that made me laugh in the movie is this moment where he goes, Womack, you piece of shit. <laughs> oh, oh, God, he saw it was me. I like that he calls, a, calls it like he sees it right from jump. <laughs> well, some guards come in and just give Sean Connery the smackdown. Yeah. Then they take him back into custody, and we see Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, and they're in the back of this police van with two other guards. And Nicolas Cage, he calls Carla, and he's leaving a message on her answering machine. He says, hey, Carla, it's me, your baby daddy. Don't come to San Francisco. I repeat, do not come to San Francisco. And she picks up hearing this message on the answering scene because she's screening her calls. And she says, like hell, I'm not coming. Click. She hangs up. What, you got 24 hours and she's still in D.C.? Uh, and she's going to first uh, maybe she could make that work eh, yeah it's not yeah, impossible she leaves right now what time is it traffic oh that's gonna be a bear she might make connery it. overhears all this and is like hey nicholas cage who's carla why can't she come to san francisco she's my girlfriend well fiance she's pregnant with my baby and there's a terrorist track being planned. I mean, forget that part. I've said too much. You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know right now. Sean Connery ends the scene by barking at Nicolas Cage, which startles him. He barks at Nicolas Cage the way Curly used to bark at attractive <laughs> women on the Three Stooges. Yeah, it's a real ruff, ruff. Smacks his bald head. <laughs> Runs his fingers up and down his neck. Lays on the ground and does a couple of 360. <laughs> so we get to the hotel, the Fairmont Hotel. And in the penthouse that they've rented out for a couple hours, Nicolas Cage asks for a gun. You don't have a gun? And he's like, no, I I don't normally carry one around, but I think I should have one. I uh left it in my sock drawer. And all the other FBI agents snicker at him because, you know, he's an idiot. As opposed to at the beginning of the film where he saved the day and kept FBI headquarters from blowing up. But in fairness, they make one of the other agents just hand over a gun to him. So mission accomplished, I guess. I think the way that you fix this movie is you don't have him be such a rock star at the beginning. Have his character be the one telling people what to do with that baby Belch's biohazards doll and have someone else be the one in the tank with the doll. But like he's the... He's got the smarts, but he hasn't had the experience in the field yet. So then when you move him yeah. into this space, it's like, oh, okay. And then throughout the film, he gradually sort of comes into his own and finds his natural heroic nature. You kind of take him you know, a regular normal guy and turn him into an action. You can have him be hands-on, but just have him fuck something up, have him bumble. Right. 
Yeah. So that, you know, it's sort of a redemption through the course of the story, but. He does get a gun, and the movie cuts to Sean Connery taking a shower, and he steals the retractable line that you use to hang clothes in the bathroom. Uh huh. And Sean Connery, he peeks out of the shower, and he grabs a phone, and he's like, boop, boop, boop. He's like, hello? Is, hey, is, do, is this, do you have room service in this hotel? No, 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 no. Oh, thank God. No, 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 no. All right, look, here's here's what I want you to do. I want you to send up about, I don't know, seven or $18,000 uh, worth of huh? food, expensive food, like no, no, the no, no. kind of, oh, shit, hold on. I don't you know I'm going to San Francisco washing my balls. Are you no. still there? No, 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 no. All right, listen, here's what I need. I need a bunch of expensive food, the kind of food that when you look at it, you know it costs a lot of money, like big lobsters and big bottles of champagne, things like that. Could you send a lot of that stuff? No, 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 no. All right, perfect. All right, thank you very much. And um, also, I'm going to need some more soap. I've really been scrubbing up my notes good. All right, thank you very much. Come on, click. No, no. <laughs> so... Anthony Clark, welcome to the movie. Dude. It's funny because we had to, you and I personally had been talking about Anthony Clark days before I watched this movie. How crazy was that, that this somewhat obscure 90s era comedian, I mean, he starred on two different sitcoms. He was on yeah. Yes, Dear, and was it was it Boston Commons? Was that him? I don't know. But he had two sitcoms. But he comes in, talk about <laughs> the stereotypes of the black people in the jail. He shows up as a gay hairstylist. It's embarrassing. It's like a dollar store version of Bronson Pinchot's Surge over in Beverly Hills Cop. So he comes in and Womack is like, oh boy, you better not give him any scissors. I don't think that's going to go well. He could murder you right through the heart with those. Don't give him any clippers or scissors. Oh, toenail clippers. That's a no. Go in there and cut his hair. Give him here. Take this stick of butter and cut his hair with it. And these cotton balls. <laughs> so they go out to the balcony and under the smock that they throw on Sean Connery to, you know, cut his hair, he's winding the rope that he sold from the shower around his hand. Meanwhile, inside, the snacks have all arrived. Snacks? It looks like the bounty that the Ghost of Christmas present presents to Ebenezer Scrooge. It's like floor to ceiling. Come in and know me better, man. And all the agents are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck watching that old man. I just want some more of this lobster. Do you have some of this snow crab? It's delicious. And Anthony Clark finally finishes up with uh -huh. his uh, trimming of Sean Connery. And then that leaves Womack and Sean Connery alone on the balcony. And Nicolas Cage is there, too. He's the only one that's left. Sean Connery says, I can't believe you went through with this deal. I'm going to be a free man. That's right, isn't it, Womack? You're no good son of a bitch. I mean, uh. Well, what was that you were just saying? Were you saying something mean? I wasn't saying anything. Hey, you know what, Womack? Let's let bygones be bygones. You and I will reach out. Uh, we're going to do what I like to call uh, a prison trust handshake. Don't use your right hand. You've got to use your left hand. Lean out and ignore the string connected to my wrist. Okay, shake on it. And he chunks Womack off the side of this building with his arm attached to this like shower string that he stole. <laughs> yeah. Nicholas Cage is like, oh, I did not expect that to happen. He pulls a gun on Sean Connery. He's like, don't make me use this. I don't want to shoot you, but I will. Listen up. You're not going to shoot anybody. All right. And if you look, think through your logic. If you shoot me, I drop you a fucking piece of shit, boss, to the concrete below. All right. <laughs> That's a lose-lose. Let's get to a win-win. All right. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tie this piece of shit to this chair <gasps> and then I'm going to run off. <laughs> And you can save your shithead boss. Help! 
And that's what happens. He ties it to, to the leg of this chair. And while they're trying to get Womack up <laughs> from dangling on the side of this building, Sean Connery just hoofs it to the elevator. Uh-huh. He ends up in the elevator with Anthony Clark, who is like, oh my God, I don't want to die. I I don't want to hurt anyone. I just want to know, do you like your haircut? Did you find that funny? No, but it's something. They end up pulling Womack up, almost dislocating his arm in the process. Dude, that would have snapped your arm off. I, I don't see how a human body gets chunked off the side of a building like 20 feet attached to a rope like that, that it doesn't rip either his his hand off at the wrist or his arm off at the shoulder. Let's be real. This shitty shower clothes hanger would have snapped like a twig <laughs> the second it grew taut. Sean Connery takes off. Nicholas Cage gives chase. And since we're running through a hotel bow, we got to make our escape through the kitchen, right? Knocking over mm-hmm. plates and pots and pans. And at one point, Sean Connery just punches Nicolas Cage and then Sean Connery runs outside and he steals a black Hummer that was being parked at valet. Then Nicolas Cage steals a yellow Ferrari and we get a chase scene through the streets of San Francisco that is straight from the files of police squad. It is comically ridiculous (laughs) and it is thoroughly unnecessary in this movie. And it goes on forever. It's like 10 minutes of this movie. All right, let's break it down as they're being chased around first They get blocked by a work crew, then a Volkswagen bug that is spray painted with psychedelic hippie colors and peace signs because we're in San Francisco. Then because this Mm -hmm. is a police chase and much like Passenger 57, Bo, the officers call in backup from a truck filled with water bottles as a Yosemite water truck drives into frame and it gets destroyed by this Hummer just because water looks cool flying around on screen. They do it again here. Sean Connery. He then crashes this black Hummer into a meter made vehicle, which hits another car Mm -hmm. that explodes into a fireball because its trunk was full of just matches and containers of gasoline. Yeah. The thermite (laughs) that they're looking for to stop this VX gas. It's being transported. Sean Connery looks over his shoulders. He's driving away and he says, I hope you're insured. I'm like, that was fun. (laughs) What? At one point, the owner of this Humvee calls Sean Connery on the phone. Has been in prison for 30 years. <laughs> yes. Would have no idea what Jeez the hell Christ. was going on. Was goddamn bomb in this car? What's that beeping sound? Even if he hadn't been in prison, Chad, trying to explain <laughs> to this old man how to answer a, a car phone? <laughs> Impossible, I contend. I know old men that aren't, like, they can't figure out how to turn the TV to this input so they can see the cable. It would never happen. But sure enough, he picks it up, gives it one glance. He's like, boop. Hello, who's this? He's just screaming in German. Listen, I'm just borrowing your car, you German piece of shit. I'll bring it back when I'm done. He hangs up and then he calls information looking for his daughter's phone number. And all the while, we do see Nicolas Cage chasing him in this yellow Ferrari. At one point, Nicolas Cage channels his inner buddy love and becomes this FBI super agent that we all knew he could be, Bo. And he takes a shortcut through a repair shop, and he crashes through a window. They have to dodge, hand to God this is true, an old woman in a walker. Well, it's a stunt person dressed up as an old lady with a walker. Fair enough. Then it gets even better. Also, the group of murder ball enthusiasts? It's a bunch of people in wheelchairs. 
Right, but they're in athletic gear. This is where it just it became a laugh. <laughs> Yeah. As they're driving along, Nicholas Cage just goes full cool hand Luke, and he just starts mowing down parking meters just because he can. And then a cable car, because we're in San Francisco, we got to include that. Yeah, this guy's like, welcome to Roscoe's cable car. We're the safest cable car in all of San Francisco. Never had an accident. Here comes Sean Connery, smashes into the cable car. Cable car flips over. People are flying off it, sliding down on its side. It's going to crash into Nicholas Cage's stolen yellow ferrari and then he leaps from his ferrari and it smashes yeah. the car and then some douchebag rides up on a dirt bike and <laughs> he's just on the ass end of this cable car blowing up another vehicle this guy goes oh hey dude you just fucked up your ferrari and nicholas cage says it wasn't mine then he knocks this guy off his dirt bike and steals his motorcycle to go where exactly? I don't know. Conceptually, it's to find Sean Connery, but he has no idea where he is in the city. I guess he could just follow the sounds of explosions and screams. Well, he ends up calling his buddy from the office, Isherwood, and he's like, listen, I need some information on this Mason character. The guy is like, uh, I don't have any records of this guy at all, but I do have a next of kin. And you're like, what? That seems like unthorough he doesn't even have his name it's been wiped from the records he's like but here's somebody her name's jade angelou she lives in san francisco and i take a right and that's her house you're there yeah so nicholas cage ends up following jade angelou and her friend to the palace of fine arts Right. And so he trails him there where he kind of overhears this meeting where Sean Connery is hiding behind a, you know, a pillar. You, hey, are you, hey, are you Jade Angelou? No, I'm her friend. This is. No, not you. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the, to the, the bird behind you who looks like my, my dead ex-wife. You, are you, are you Jade? Dude, we learn this is not an ex-wife scenario. She was common law. All right. You look just like your mother. And and his daughter look, is let like... Let me tell you how it went You down. You mean the woman that you fucked after a Led Zeppelin right, concert? Listen. And then were was immediately arrested by the feds because you had escaped from jail? I wasn't the only one in that room who banged your, your mom after the Led Zeppelin concert. There was three <laughs> of us there. So first off, a thank you would be appreciated. All right? And the fact that the screenwriters said it was a Led Zeppelin concert is a bit on the nose, considering it's in the 60s. I recommended that it be a Herman's Hermit concert. But they said Peter Noon was a little too limp-wristed. By the way, a homosexual cut my hair on it. How does it... What is this supposed to be? What do you want from me? And I he's just says, got out of prison, and I've been practicing a speech to tell you I'm sorry for possibly being your dad. And every time I practiced it in jail, there was a guy cranking it on the bunk up top of me. I'm just, I'm all, I'm all out of sorts. I want you to know that I'm not an evil man. Now, if you can believe that, oh, well, I definitely exist. But you're one of the few things that proves that I'm a living person on this planet. I don't think that I prove that you exist. I'm pretty sure that you're my daughter. I mean, I saw the other guys in the room, and I'm pretty sure that the boys that I'm packing were the ones making it to the front of the line. A bunch of sirens wail. Another Yosemite water truck shows up. We got him, boys. The water police arrive. <laughs> I'm with Hydration Patrol. She says, did you break out of prison or something? Why are all these cops here? And then Nicolas Cage, who's just been like eavesdropping right out of sight hearing all of this, he walks in and he says, no, ma'am. 
Your father's working with us to solve a big crime. That's why we had to have a dozen police cars show up with their sirens and lights flashing to make a big scene of how important your dad is to our mission. She, and she seems to buy that. Sean Connery falls in line with Nicolas Cage and he's like, listen, Nicolas Cage, you could have done that differently. I appreciate you not being a real a-hole. I appreciate you not telling my daughter I'm a lying piece of shit. You know, like that director Womack, that fuck that you work for. Where is that piece of shit? He's probably out back getting a $10 tug for some cracked out whore behind some filthy tattoo parlor. I know his wage. Womack shows up to the scene with his arm already in a sling. Like 10 minutes later? Yeah. Oh boy, look at this. Now I'm never going to be able to go fly fishing with my nephews. <laughs> I got bowling league on Thursday, mister. Sorry. Now sure, I'm I'm right-handed, and this was my left arm that got hurt. But still, how am I going to drink a beer and bowl the ball? Explain that to me. I was just hoping I got your wanking arm. I'm ambidextrous when it comes to masturbation. Well, Mac, I'm going to shoot you in your shoulder if you oh, keep oh, this up. Oh, sorry, sorry. So we go to the mobile peer command yes. where Michael Bean is once more going over the plan to infiltrate it. And, and Sean Connery is beside him. Bean is kind of questioning him like, hey, so once we get into this pipe, where do we go from there? And he's like, well, sure. it's 97 paces after that. And then you got to take a left. But also it's best if you just hang out there for about 10 minutes and take a shit because there's some fire stuff and it's a it's a real mess real quick the amount of property damage that happened during the car chase that far exceeds the 100 million dollar ransom that they're wanting a hundred percent not to mention completely blows the lid off of their secret plan because at least one reporter is gonna be like so who was driving those cars and why oh it's classified let me call a couple of people i know who work could in this the- possibly be tied to all of those calls we received last night about those 100 people that never came home from alcatraz yesterday because right. the- <laughs> we went down <laughs> to the ferry boat and the guy there was equally confused like yeah they never came back i mean i went over to get them and they started shooting guns at me wait they what what the only people who came back was a teacher and two little girls who shit their pants yeah, and she left me this note to give to the handsome guy with the beautiful blue eyes i, I haven't read it hold me let me up meet me at tgi fridays oh whatever that means and sean connery is just like listen you're never gonna be able to figure it out where you're going because these blueprints are yeah. shit also i know how to get out because the map shouldn't be head that's how it works i'll know it once i get inside you know once i look around it'll all start to look familiar to me you know how it is when you get older your memory gets sharper you remember everything (laughs) when you're young in the tunnel system in the rock it takes you everyone to go. It's you. You remember how Fester used to travel in the Adams family from room to room? It's a lot like that. Plus, I'm illiterate and I have glaucoma and I'm colorblind. I gotta get in there to help you see what you want to find. I've spent the past thirty years just making shit up in my room. Honestly, I don't even know if you're not a dragon because I think they can assume human form. FBI Director Woman chimes in. Listen up, Sean Connery. You're not going down there. You're an old man, and you're also you're an asshole. And then Agent Paxton jumps in and says, "Wait a minute. I have no authority at all." over FBI Director Womack here, but Sean Connery may be the only chance we have to save those people. And also remember, they've got Ockett's Ray filled with oisin pay. Oh God, with the pig Latin again. I told you I didn't go to college. What did he say? Poison rockets, sir. Oh, okay. Poison rockets. Oh, forget I said that, Sean Connery. You're an asshole. What'd you say about poison rockets? I didn't say that. Look over there. Listen, Womack, it sounds to me like you're between the rock and a hard case. Wait, hard case? Hard place. Did I say case or place? When it comes out loud, place sounds better. Hmm. 
Also, Womack, your penis is small and your wife is never satisfied in the bedroom. <laughs> so, we cut away from that to another little powwow between Nicolas Cage and Michael Bean and his men. And Nicolas Cage is like, all right, now when you get to the rockets, you're going to unscrew this thing and then do this. And you're probably going to need to unplug this too. And Michael Bean is like, I don't need you to tell me any of that. You're coming with us. And he's like, what, 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 what? I'm just a paper jockey who diffuses bombs in an office. I've never diffused a bomb outside the office. What will the temperature be? Is it above or below what I'm used to? I'm not sure that I can handle that type of environmental change to defuse a bomb. Am I going to be able to get a Nescafe immediately after? These are questions I have to know. He excuses himself and goes into the bathroom to throw up because he's so nervous, you know, because he's a super agent. Yeah. And then Agent Paxton walks in. He's like, hey, man, are, are you okay? My girlfriend is pregnant and she just flew in to see me. Paxton says, hey, buddy, don't worry. I'll send someone to go pick her up so she can be here for the finale of the movie. Thank you! We finally get back to Alcatraz, which we haven't seen for about 45 minutes. What's going on with our hostages and Ed Harris and the Pentagon? So it's just Ed Harris getting a phone call. It's Al, the the main guy's buddy. He's like, hey there, Ed, hey. Hey, look, we're having a little bit of trouble transferring all that money. Seems uh, an emergency request came in to set up a command center out on the West Coast office, and they're putting a hold on all of our spending due to some outrageous insurance claims that started pouring in a little bit earlier today uh we're gonna need a little more time and ed harris is like well you have 17 hours al and hangs up on him and after he hangs up all the army guys are like we have no assurance that we're gonna get this thermite stuff together so we're going to have to send this seal team in to hopefully resolve this Mm -hmm. without paying out another three billion dollars in city (laughs) property damage it's now night let's send a bunch of people with weapons to a national (laughs) monument that'll be less expensive based on what i've seen i think that that's correct so it's now nighttime and the movie tells us we have 15 hours to complete this mission our team of heroes get into these navy helicopters and they all have mini cams on their suits to explain how the folks back at headquarters will be able to see and know what's going on and one soldier hands sean connery a bag and he says this contains a quart of kerosene three washers and some waterproof matches and you're like, hmm, that seems odd mm-hmm. that he gave that to Sean Connery. And then I thought, wait a minute, maybe that soldier saw sudden death. Somebody is going to get set fire. Does, <laughs> does Sean Connery have a water gun? Does he have a grudge against a giant <laughs> penguin mascot? Then another soldier hands Nicolas Cage a giant syringe, like the one we saw at the beginning of the movie, that he refused to stab himself in the heart to keep him alive when this poison gets all over him. Yeah. Nicolas Cage, he kind of sees it and he's like, I know what that is. That's a Mia Wallace if I've ever seen one. I will never stick that in my heart to stay alive. But kind of why? What is the problem with keeping yourself alive in the face of poison? Because the screenwriters saw Pulp Fiction and they're like, oh, that was pretty cool. Nicolas Cage's girlfriend, Carla, gets picked up by Paxton. She says, hey, I want to know where Nicolas Cage is. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you. She's like, screw you. If you're not going to tell my boyfriend, I mean my fiance, then I'm out of here, you bureau bonehead. And then she leaves her car to go who knows where. But then we just later see her at FBI HQ. Yeah. Nicolas Cage and Sean connery are on this helicopter bound for the outskirts of the alcatraz island talking about like all the new equipment like sean connery is like well back in my day we just had flippers and a snorkel 
And sometimes not even that. Sometimes you had to just suck the air out of an old tire. And he says, by the way, Nicolas Cage, I know you didn't go to terrorist school, so don't fuck around and get us all killed, you piece of shit. You and Womack are two birds of a feather, if you ask me. If I see you together, I'm going to smack your skulls together to see if they sound like a couple of coconuts. I used to envision that when I laid under the bottom cot while Angelo up top cranked it. It's also when I wrote that letter to my daughter. Where are we going again? Who's that guy? Did I tell you that I'm colorblind? I also don't have a sense of taste. So the Navy SEALs, they get dropped off in the water and they head over to Alcatraz. But before all this happens, the mercenaries on their radar get a signal that they're coming. So the Navy SEALs go down this tunnel and they go through the water and they pop up in this room that looks like a video game level where all the doors are locked and they've got to be opened by a character rolling through this open space that intermittently belches fire while giant gears with spaces in the middle roll by and just blasts out flames why this would be occurring in this tourist attraction is truly baffling it's just silly yeah sean connery gets down there he's like look i timed this all right i know exactly how many seconds it takes for the big wheelie mediggers to go around and then the fire to blast through so i'm gonna roll through here then i'm gonna go around i'm gonna unlock the door and then we're gonna go upstairs and we're gonna save these hostages I guess. The thing that he has to go through this shaft, it's like a thing out of the Dragon Slayer video game where it's just uh-huh. fire bursting intermittently and a swinging axe and all kinds of stuff. It is. Cottery is like, all right, I'll be back in a minute, everybody. They just watch him go. Uh-huh. And he slips through this passage, opens up this giant door after a second. There's a brief moment where they're like, I wonder if he's going to leave us here. And then the door opens and we get the kind of trailer line where he says, gentlemen, welcome to the rock. Mm -hmm. And then we just move through a Terry Gilliam movie set as these soldiers make their way through this fantasy world under Alcatraz. As they're entering Alcatraz, Nicolas Cage asks Sean Connery, so are you having a good time? And Sean Connery says, well, This is more fun than my average day, reading philosophy and avoiding getting gang-raped. That's actual dialogue from this movie. Yeah, the fact that for no good reason we're just going to throw a little bit of gang rape into the mix, that is a heavy spice. It does color this scene, but th- but he backs it up with the, like, these days nobody seems to want to rape me in the showers. Maybe I'm losing my sex appeal. Also, real line from the movie, <laughs> that he bemoans the fact <laughs> that people aren't trying to rape him. <laughs> so our terrorist mercenaries, they sent some seismic activity in a specific area of Alcatraz and they go to investigate which how could just 10 people coming in through the water tunnels create enough seismic activity to raise alert in a facility surrounded by crashing ocean waves it's the trembler thing that is on the grate that's not gonna do all right okay basically they're gonna go up into the shower room And Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery are going to stay behind. They set off that little trembler device. Hey, look, I'm not going into any prison shower room. That's where all the gang rape I was talking about takes place. Listen, you call me when you tell me that everyone's still got their pants on after five (laughs) minutes. I've seen how this goes. You know, all these soldiers kind of come up through the grate and immediately are surrounded by Ed Harris's men, including Ed Harris, who shows up. Welcome back to the movie, Ed Harris. 
<laughs> yeah. The gorgeous blue eyes staring <laughs> down at Michael Bean. Ed Harris is like, you need to lay down your arms. We have superior firepower. We have an elevated position. If you do not put your guns down, we are going to fire and we will kill all of uh-huh. you. And Michael Bean gives him this speech where he's like, Ed Harris, first of all, you are one of the most striking men I've ever seen in my entire damn life. Second of all, we took an oath to fight enemies, both foreign and domestic, sir. And so that's why, you know, I cannot follow that order. I agree with what you're doing here in principle. We spilled blood in the same mud, sir, he says. And then he like calls to Ed Harris's men and is like, you people, you took an oath. Did you forget about that? That you took an oath as a Marine? And then it turns into this shouting match between Michael Bean and Ed Harris. But that's what movies like this in the 90s did. Like It was that you can't handle the truth. It was just these alpha males screaming and yelling to see who's got the bigger dick. Something we don't see in modern day society at all on cable news right. or politics or on any street <laughs> yeah. corner when the light goes from red to green and someone doesn't accelerate quick enough. Yeah, or just there's like good old-fashioned full moon and the crazies come out. It's Ed Harris saying, don't make me give that order again. And Michael Bean yelling back, you know I can't follow that order. It's, you can't handle the truth. I don't understand what the truth is. I've got my own set of alternative facts. <laughs> and then one of Ed Harris's guys. It's mercenary newbie who's right beside the candy man. He knocks over a chunk of concrete, which goes yeah. clickety clack. And then the bullets start flying. It is just hell raining down on Michael Bean and his men. There was one soldier that was kind of left behind with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Well, he didn't want to get shower rape. He's like, really? That's what they do up there? Listen, you stay down here. You're going to be my lookout. I'm go- you're going to peek up there, and if you see one willy, you tell me. And I'll know if you're lying, because I can see the reflection in your eyes, you son of a bitch. Okay, I've never had sex with a with a woman or a man, and I don't want the first time that I have sex to be a gang raped in a prison shower. Well, don't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just kind of building up the anticipation for myself. <laughs> you know, I talk a big game, but really, at the end of the day, I'm going to be dropping these trousers. <laughs> so this guy is like, I, I need to go up and be with the rest of my platoon or squad or whatever. And Nicolas Cage is like, don't go. I got to go. And so he pokes his head up and immediately gets shot in the head. Bullets are just going everywhere, which surprisingly, none of our bad guys get killed. Well, of course not. They're in an elevated position, is it, Harry? pointed out he ends up staring dead-eyed at Nicolas Cage who does give a good and I think honest reaction of like if you saw that you would just be like oh my god that is so crazy but he's like really horrified by it Sean Connery is like well, I guess this mission's over, and grabs the dead guy's gun and just starts hoofing it. Meanwhile, at the command center, everybody's like, oh my god, all of our men are dead. Oh, jeez, jeez, it's over. Oh, gosh. Boy, that that went sideways fast. Whose terrible idea was this? Not it! Somebody points out, like, oh, Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery are still alive, and Agent Paxton is like, oh, they're never gonna do anything. Like, we might as well have nobody there. That doesn't matter. And so we go back to The Rock, where Connery is just beaten feet retracing his steps to get the hell out of uh, Alcatraz. General Ed Harris walks over to the camera of one of the dead soldiers and looks in it and he tells everyone back at the command center, you have made a terrible mistake. Damn you for forcing me into this position. Ed Harris has the upper hand. This is the moment where Paxton takes FBI director Womack off to the side and he says, listen up Womack, who is Sean Connery in this movie? What's going on? Womack says, ah, jeez. All right, I'm going to tell you you can't tell anybody else this is a secret all right pinky swear back in the day j edgar hoover remember him well he had a secret microfilm and he had all these files on everybody 
Well, Sean Connery, you know, the guy who you were asking about, he stole those files, if you can believe it. So we just held him without a trial, because that happens sometimes in America. And he never gave us the microfilms, so we just threw him in prison forever. It, he, he has every secret of the last quarter century of the United States. We can't let him out. Then we cut back to Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage at Xerox, where Nicolas Cage has caught up with Sean Connery, just pulls his gun, and is, gives him a freeze, sucker. I've got a lunatic up there with chemical weapons that can kill everyone in San Francisco. Show what? I don't give a shit about any of this. I'm going to leave. Look, I've got a fiance with a kid on the way and you've got your daughter we've got to stop this to save the people we love who live in san francisco we're in the same boat you and me let me ask you a question why didn't you tell my daughter and a hot friend you know to get out to town hey, let me ask you another question i know i'm a much older guy but i kind of got a vibe from a friend i think her name was stacy it probably was stacy it's the mid-90s a lot of girls named stacy she was kind of giving me the eye right when we were sitting on the bench talking she's off in the distance I've not had a lot of sexual contact with another human being. Well, you know, face to face. A lot of things from behind. Also, I just have a very vivid imagination. In my head, I've had sex with almost every sentient animal alive. I think that Stacy was totally into you. I didn't want to say anything, but I think that Stacy probably has daddy issues. The kind of daddy issues that I think that you could take care of. If you could help me get these poison rockets solved, maybe you could go after Stacy and live a happy life with an emotionally damaged girl. Do you think it would be weird for my daughter to be friends with basically her own stepmother? Not at all. That sounds like most daughters dream to have their best friend marry their elderly father who's been in prison for 30 years. All right, I'll tell you what, Nicholas Cage. You've really won me over. Let's go fix this problem. So Ed Harris, we see him ordering his men. He says, oh, we still got rats. So go, go kill Nicolas Cage and Sean uh -huh. Connery, which isn't hard to do because Nicolas Cage is just yammering the entire way Echo! that he's following Echo! Sean Connery. <laughs> dog dick, dog dick. Boy. Dog. I love the sound of my own voice. The sound of my own voice. This dude with a man bun mm -hmm. overhears Nicolas Cage just spouting off like, boy, this water sure is cold and deep too. Do you know that joke, Sean Connery? Yes, yes, I know that joke. He ends up, this man bun dude, drops some explosives down this shaft, at which point it explodes and they're blown into the water. Ed Harris is like, burn them out. And so they throw a second bomb that is just this giant like napalm yeah, bomb. Sends a fireball through all these tunnels our heroes yeah drop into the water below to avoid getting burned alive it's almost comical to watch sean connery and nicholas cage sploosh 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 through this water it's like watching jack sparrow high step it it's the hero dive under the water and you know you see the flames passing overhead and that kind of thing and i guess at this point they assume oh yeah they're just dead yeah i would think so or badly burned <laughs> i'm not dead i'm still alive I'm just badly burned. <laughs> but the problem with this is, is that Sean Connery does not learn his own lesson because as soon as they get clear, he just starts telling Nicolas Cage, like, hey, did you know this used to be a fort? I just wanted to let you know there's some interesting history to this place. I thought you told me to be quiet. Well, it's different if I do it. I have a much more melodious voice. Even if they d decide that the rats aren't dead, as they put it, they're going to be interested in my storytelling. These two make their way to the morgue and Sean Connery says, all right, listen up, Boyle. Are you ready for this? I'll do my best. 
your best. Losers whine about their best. Winners go home and they fuck the prom queen. Fun fact, though. That was mm-hmm. actually dialogue that George Lucas had in an early draft for Empire Strikes Back when Yoda's <laughs> training Luke Skywalker, but it read, best you will give. Best is what losers whine about. Fuck the prom queen at home is what winners do. And then Lawrence Kasdan came in and was like, look, this is, we got to clean this up. How about do or do not? There is no try. We're, we're going for a PG. Yeah, we we yeah. can't have Yoda talking about fucking prom queens. He's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Lawrence. Kids these days are pretty mature. They, they might like to hear Yoda t- talking about fucking a prom queen. I know that I enjoyed writing it and reading it. You know, a lot of these kids grew up with Star Wars. They're a little bit older now, Lawrence. Maybe they'd like to hear something that relates to their life. They're probably in high school now and looking at prom queens and feeling inadequate. Maybe they just want to fuck them. Have you ever noticed how it, when the lightsabers comes out, it, it looks like an erection? That wasn't accidental. That was on purpose. I ripped a lot off from Akira Kurosawa but that wasn't one of them he didn't he doesn't have any penises in his movies the seven samurai isn't the seven phalluses as much as i would have liked to have seen that that's the kind of line that when you hear it in a movie like this you're just like this is just the lowest common denominator stupid bullshit (laughs) it's so frustrating and then nicholas cage says my girlfriend is the prom queen and sean connor gives him a look like who's that show do you think she's french with stacy can we do a little three-way action look as someone said earlier in the movie i've got a little lead left in the pencil these two are in the morgue and a couple of these terrorist mercenaries show up on this video game level and apparently they were just sitting around not doing anything and ignored the two massive explosions that occurred right under their feet 30 seconds ago one of them looks up and sean connery he just throws a knife at this guy's throat in the same way that that arrow flew through the air in kevin costner's robin hood and it's just like kathunk then we get more gunfire and explosions Mm -hmm. and the whole time nicholas cage is just screaming and running around don't shoot the rocket don't shoot the rocket and Sean Connery ends up shooting the feet of this mercenary under a desk. Pretty good squib work <laughs> when he shoots these feet up. It's all right. But then one guy pulls out a grenade. But before he can pull the pin, Sean Connery shoots the support chains of an air conditioner. And it falls down and crushes this guy's head. And here we get some, in quotes, humor from the movie where after the battle, Nicolas Cage looks at the dude where the air conditioner fell on his head and says, Well, that's just about the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And then he starts to disassemble the rocket. And as he's doing it, the dude's leg starts kicking. Uh-huh. And he goes, does that happen a lot? Is that something that you've seen before? Oh, I've seen a lot of things before. I've seen dead men's bodies twitch in all different sorts of fashions. You know, uh, if you look at his pants, he's got an erection right now. Looks a lot like a lightsaber. Also, his fans are choked with poo. That's true. <laughs> at the moment of death, all of your muscles relax. He's got pee-pee and poo-poo in his pants, Nicholas Cage. If you want, I'll unbuckle his belt and show you. That is not necessary. I am trying to disarm this bomb. I told you I don't have a sense of taste or smell, so I can't smell it. Can you smell his pee-pee and poo-poo? Yes, I can smell it, and I can see it. Okay, good. I can't smell shit. Literal shit. I can't smell it. So Nicholas Cage takes out the tube from the rocket that contains these strings of green balls and sean connery says shay what happens if you were to drop one of those green balls we're all gonna die unless you stab yourself in the heart with that syringe that the guy gave me earlier in the helicopter remember that it will come up later in the movie also you might have heard the same explanation from some other guys at the pentagon and then there was that scene earlier when one of the guys died stealing all these rockets but the audience watching this movie has a head full of sand <laughs> We got to make sure that we tell them three to five times what it is that they should be worried about. General Ed Harris says, wait a minute. 
it. The team in the morgue hasn't checked in. Something's fishy. So he sends down some more mercenaries to see what's going on in the morgue. About this time, Nicolas Cage, he disarms the first rocket and then these two escape. And it's kind of like how Van Damme disarmed those bombs in sudden death. And I get that this is a diehard <laughs> knockoff. And this movie almost feels like a sudden death knockoff, which is a diehard knockoff. Yeah. Because Powers Booth wanted all that money from the government. We're running around disarming bombs. We're going to set a guy on fire with kerosene from a lighter a little later. A lot of similarities. Also, also at the end of this, Nicolas Cage says, all right, there are three rockets left. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just disarmed 12 rockets? Is that what just happened? This one rocket has 12 of the navigation chips or something. Yeah. It's a sloppy cheat. Right, because all of a sudden, you're down to three rockets in this movie and you started with 15. It's like, wow, okay, well, that was efficient. At the moment that they decide, oh, we've got these 12 rockets, I guess, or 12 guidance chips taken care of, then some guys from Ed Harris's team show up and start shooting at them. They jump through this hole in the wall. Yeah, and end up in the Temple of Doom minecart, which rockets through this underground tunnel and magical land where trolls asking for gold underneath them and stuff. It's just crazy. After they take off, Ed Harris is accusing, you know, mercenary McGinley of, hey, did you kill the rat? Ah, jeez, boss. I dropped two bombs down there. One of them was the big firebomb. Can't nobody survive that, boss. Look into these deep azure pools. Hi, boss. Don't make me look in your eyes. I've already fallen in love with you three times today. Are you going to go kill the people now? You know I am, boss. I'll do anything you say, boss. You better. And so off he goes. So Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery are riding in this... I mean, truly, it's just a minecart. It's Temple of Doom. Yeah. No, Indy. He said... Take the left track, the left track. It's crazy. And so Nicolas Cage ends up like jumping off at the last minute before the minecart goes over the side of this busted track into a one presumes a bottomless pit underneath. With octopuses and mermaids. (laughs) Yeah, and Sean Connery is saved by a rope that's tied to his leg while Nicolas Cage is hanging from... Ah, shit. I'm upside down over here. And a bunch of bad guys show up. This is the point where Sean Connery squirts some lighter fluid on... Wait a minute. I've got that bottle of lighter fluid and and those waterproof matches. This is going to come in handy. Yeah, so he just sets, gives a little bit of the hot foot uh-huh. to Mercenary McGinley, who ends up falling, but he grabs onto the rope, and Sean Connery cuts that to send him down into the abyss below them where a kraken awaits. I guess. Also, time check. We are only 90 minutes into this movie with 45 minutes left to go. And as always, I promise it is not going to take us as long to wrap this thing up as it took us to get us here. But how is this movie two hours and 15 minutes long? It is painful to to sit through it's an hour before you get to alcatraz with nicholas cage and sean connery and that should happen at the 30 minute mark but they had to have that whole car chase scene and the hotel scene Ugh. you could have cut all of that out and just explain it in the backseat of a limousine what's going on Oh, absolutely. But yeah, so one of the dudes who shows up from Ed Harris's team throws a grenade in Nicolas Cage's iron ore bucket yep. that he's in. And so he just throws it back and then somehow gets the thing moving. Hot potato! Yeah. He is now sliding in the opposite direction from whence they came in one of these buckets while two guys are in another bucket behind him. It's silly. Sean Connery somehow has freed himself and gets the drop on these guys 
guys, throwing one more guy to the Kraken, and then Nicolas Cage finally becomes a real FBI agent or whatever. By shooting a terrorist in the head and screaming, die, motherfucker, die, die. When they end up killing these two dudes, Sean Connery is like, well, look at you becoming a man. You finally took another human life. You feel like a god, don't you? I know I do. Turn around. Let me see the front of your pants. You see that? That's a murder boner. That's what happens when you kill him. <laughs> That's an erection that'll never go away. Even when it softens up, it's always there waiting for you. <laughs> the murder boner. <laughs> and so we are now eight hours to our deadline. God. We're at the Pentagon and Lou is getting real bitchy about like, hey, when's uh somebody asked him like, hey, when's the thermite team going to be ready? And he goes, well, they're going as fast as they can. How about you just back <laughs> off? It's like that it wasn't even supposed to be ready. It's like, geez, Lou, calm down. I'm just asking a question. Well, it was the way you asked it. Back at The Rock, Ed Harris, he hops on the prison PA system. It's not like high school. And he can communicate with everybody in every room of this decaying compound. Ed Harris says, uh, hey, Navy SEALs, it's the uh, increasingly and strikingly sexy Ed Harris. Look, you have the 12 guidance chips that I need. Lives are at stake. Do me a favor. Hey, guys, uh, grab me an innocent civilian. Just pick. It doesn't matter. Just grab one from the What about Ranger Bob? No, I don't want him. Give me a regular person. I'm looking for a Doug Jones type. (laughs) Not Doug Jones, but somebody who could play Doug Jones in the Doug Jones story. So they break up this guy. I'm going to kill an innocent civilian if you don't give me the chips that I need so that I can kill millions of innocent civilians. This hostage they bring up, he's like, all right, hostage, tell me your name. And the guy's like, oh, my name's Douglas Brainsplatters Jr. (laughs) My dad was killed in Passenger 57. I've got three kids. And a service dog named Old Yeller. Oh my god, they're putting a gun next to my dog's head, like that famous National Lampoon cover. And so Sean Connery basically says, listen, you go find those other rockets. I'll go handle this whole hostage situation. <laughs> oh, and he takes the guidance chips, throws them on the ground, and smash them with his boot. He's, yeah. like, he's like, hey, look, listen up, Nicholas Cage. The needs of the mini something something i'm gonna <laughs> i'm going topside to deal with this jackass before he leaves nicholas cage says what about mr brain splatters and his head that's about to be splattered and sean connery just turns around and gives nicholas cage a big thumbs up then disappears into the smoke yeah i don't know what this thumbs up means. i found it to be more haunting in fact i thought <laughs> sean connery's about to leave the movie see you later jackass i think that's what sean connery was thinking too you know i could just keep going just i know i've got a little house here on the island for me to shoot and everything but there's gonna be a boat probably one with food i'll wait for the one with all the booze to show up i'll take that one back (laughs) nicholas cage somehow stumbles across one of the three remaining rockets quite fortuitously and so he starts taking out the green chemical balls and then sean connery he just walks out into the courtyard where all the terrorists are why didn't they immediately just shoot him that's a real mystery the real answer is because screenplay the practical answer within the world of the movie is who could possibly know especially because sean connery immediately starts giving ed harris shit when harris talks about patriotism and that kind of thing he's like you know to me you sound like a fucking idiot i'm not kidding i've known a lot of real assholes in my time and you're up there and you're top three with a bullet ed harris asked him he's like who the hell are you old man i'm the last one that's left i'm giving up name and rate sailor which i don't know why he calls him a sailor and he says i actually I was in the army. Captain Sean Connor. Uh, Her Majesty's SAS retired, of course. I'm an old man. I have a unique knowledge of this prison facility, as I was formerly a guest here, wrongfully imprisoned, much like John Coffey or Andy Dufresne or Dr. Richard Kimball. Anyone? 
Not a movie buff, I take it? <laughs> I'm not sure how you plan to kill millions of people in the cherished memory of your fallen soldiers. It's an act of lunacy. You're a fucking idiot. Honestly, you never saw The Fugitive, the TV show or the movie with Harrison Ford. I never saw it, mister. I was too busy sacrificing lives for this country. Harrison, look, Harrison Ford. He was my son in that third Indiana Jones picture. Should have been the last one, if you ask me, but nobody did. Aliens? What the fuck, Lucas? Actually, I wanted it to be a haunted house, but uh, uh, Stephen talked me out of it. Both ideas equally stupid. Ed Harris then says, well, where are all my guidance chips? Yeah, bend over and I'll show you, sweetheart. It turns out I destroyed them all. They're as dead as Julius Caesar. That's a Shakespeare reference. Or a history reference. I like history. Would you like to hear about the Moors? I'll take one of those Chesterfields if you got it. Ed Harris is about to shoot Sean Connery, but he's distracted from the task because somewhere in the bowels of Alcatraz, two guys have found Nicolas Cage descended behind him like spiders uh-huh. and are now in a fistfight slash gunfight with Nicolas Cage. And they end up just beating the shit out of him and tell him like, oh, it's a good thing the general wants you alive, I guess because of the guidance chips. I have no idea why they just don't shoot them both, but instead they put Sean Connery in one cell and they put Nicolas Cage in another cell. When they capture Nicolas Cage, one of the soldiers that captures him has a knife and says, I take pleasure in gutting you, boy. And so when they cut to them in cells, which by the way, 52 minutes to deadline for those keeping count, Nicolas Cage just is lying on his back, shouting up at the ceiling, I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. Just repeating it like a maniac. Again, he made up a lot of his dialogue in this movie, and I think this was part of it. (laughs) I'm certain. And so Sean Connery is basically tying together a bunch of bedsheets and tying this to that. Makes like a little lasso. Yeah, and it's him basically like lassoing the handle that keeps the door closed. And Nicolas Cage is beneath him saying, we've learned a lot about each other, but one thing you never mentioned was... How you got out of the cell, which would be really good to know right about now. His exact words were, I understand how you went from the morgue to the minecar level. His exact words are, that was all very cool, by the way. But how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of your cell? (laughs) Yeah. And then his door opens up. This is a very poorly constructed prison that someone could just sort of toss a rope with a hoop on the end of it and it pops open your door. Yeah. A lasso, one of the earliest forms of grabbing something that's not close to you. Seems like they would have considered that. So anyway, Ed Harris is then informed that, oh, by the way, Nicolas Cage did get to one of the other rockets. So there's only two left. Uh And also time is tick, tick, ticking away mercenary Candyman and mercenary newbie are both like so we're gonna fire some rockets right we only got two of these left we're gonna melt people right right in fact you can keep our million we just want to hear people screaming and watch them melt and of course ed harris is looking all reticent about that but then we cut over to nicholas cage and sean connery and sean connery is back on his bed of just like listen i'm leaving i looked in that guy's eyes there's no way he's gonna fire those rockets i know a man's heart the soil of a man's heart is stonia lewis that's pet cemetery Look, I just know what I'm talking about, all right? I was James Bond, for Christ's sake. 
<laughs> I think I can tell when someone's going to fire a rocket. This is where Sean Connery, he just punches Nicolas Cage in the gut. Mm -hmm. And he finally just walks off and Nicolas Cage says, fine, I'll do it myself. And then Nicolas Cage just magically appears on the roof of Alcatraz. And there are three terrorists there that run over to help launch this rocket. And then Nicolas Cage is just immediately taken at gunpoint. And this is where Nicolas Cage was reading his dialogue off these scribbled cue cards. And he goes, yeah. glass or plastic, glass or plastic. Because if that rocket goes off, you're going to end up in a glass jar or a plastic bag. Let's go disarm some rockets. And then Sean Connery, who just told Nicolas Cage to go piss up a rope, immediately shows back in our movie and breaks this mercenary terrorist neck. And Sean Connery says, well, I didn't want your baby growing up without a father. It turns out I wasn't around for my daughter, and I think she's pretty screwed up. I mean, I don't know her that well, but I looked in her eyes, and I told you I can take the measure of a person just by looking in those steely <laughs> blue orbs. Just like I knew Ed Harris wasn't going to fire a, a rocket, I can tell you my daughter's doing some freaky shit. <laughs> Ed Harris then finally gives an order to fire a rocket, which makes everybody but Ed Harris happy. Everybody in the movie kind of gives it a, what the fuck? Oh, here we go. <laughs> and Bo, it's headed towards the holiest of holy places, a sports stadium filled with people watching a football game. Yes. And so like people at the mobile command are watching it. Nicolas Cage jumped up on a windowsill to see this thing take off. Mercenary Candyman is at their control center in Alcatraz for the bad guys. He's so excited. Oh yeah. He's like... Here it comes, here it comes. At the last minute, Ed Harris does a little tappity tappity tap into his computer. Right. And the rocket splashes down. Into the ocean, causing an ecological disaster, the likes of which the world hasn't seen ever. Causing a total meltdown of the aquatic ecosystem <laughs> off the coast of San Francisco. It's worse than any atomic bomb. Oil spill, any of that stuff. It's just the worst. Once that green stuff touches the water, whoo, nilly. Back in the bad guy's control center, mercenary Candyman is like, what in the fuck just happened? I, it, was, it was about to blow up at the football stadium stadium and then major tom orders mercenary candy man out of the room uh -huh. i need to talk to ed harris alone if you please and i don't need you around tell the men i love them very much they know <laughs> So he uh, orders Mercenary Candyman out of the room, and somehow or another, Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery have now gotten into the hallway just outside this room, where they're like, and Sean Connery's like, listen, listen, this is one of my favorite things to do. I just love it when you hear some good gossip. Listen to what they're saying. Maybe we can use it against them, maybe not, but it's going to be entertaining as hell. The thing I find most exciting about it is that they might start talking shit about people, and they might even start talking shit about us. Then later Later on, we can bring it up and say, oh yeah, you said this shit about us the other day. We were hiding and listening and it just becomes a big thing. We did it in prison all the time, before and after the gangway. Listen, if they say something really nasty, I'm going to call Mercenary Candyman on the phone later and tell him all about it. Sow some dissent in the ranks. You pay attention, Nicolas Cage. It's going to feel counterintuitive, but if you have to fart, just let it go. <laughs> the looks on their faces when they hear you passing wind and realizing we've been here the whole time it's the absolute fucking best also if you can manage a quiet squeaker they'll each think the other's done it <laughs> honestly it was the only way i entertained myself in solitary i would fart and look at the gods outside my cell and see which one thought the other one had done it and then when they looked in the <laughs> shell at me i would kind of point to that guy this may be a bit too personal but because of all the previously mentioned gang rape 
The only way I can actually fart is by pushing my butt cheeks together with my hands, the way you would do it on your face to make fart noises. It's a bit convoluted, but it's still the real deal. Honestly, I'm, if they get any of that million dollars that they're planning, I could use some of that money to get myself a butt vice. What, they don't make those anymore? <laughs> well, they did when I went to prison. So, Major Tom wants to call for some more time. Ed Harris ends up pulling a gun on him. And he says, look, I've asked you as a friend, Major Tom. And I've asked you as a superior officer. Now I'm telling you as a man with a gun to your head, let me worry about this. And you keep your mouth shut. And we get a cutaway to the White House, where the president (laughs) gives this little mini speech about this being the hardest day he's ever had in office Uh or whatever. And orders this thermite strike on Al. They're just going to blow up the island with all these hostages and all of this poison. And yeah, and you're just like, whatever. I thought this was happening anyway. I don't need to see the president mulling it over. You're just making all of this last longer. And that's the last thing we need in this movie. This is where mercenary newbie and mercenary Candyman and some other random mercenary, they barge in. They're like, what the hell's going on? Did you change the coordinates? And Ed Harris says, what if I did? Beat it, numbskulls. And they get real pissed off. And then mercenary Candyman says, what about our our money and ed harris says you know the thing about the money there's no money the mission's over and these mercenaries are outraged especially mercenary candy man who is like the second we took this job we didn't do it for patriotism we became mercenaries and right. i want my million dollars i don't give a shit about any of these people well you're not gonna get it are there gonna be helicopters of course there aren't what about going <laughs> to one of those countries where they don't extradite us well, that's not happening either. It's a real like, uh, okay. So what do we do now? Yeah, and so it ends up with everybody pulling a gun on everybody. Well, everybody pulling a gun on Ed Harris and up to and including Major Tom, who looks like he's going to shoot Ed Harris, but ends up, it turns out that he's just playing coy. I guess. So he shoots Mercenary Candyman. Ed Harris gets shot up a bunch. Mercenary Newbie gets away. Like, Mercenary Candyman's not dead, but he's shot. At that point, Sean Connery, for no good reason, is like, well, let's get in there and get Ed Harris out. Looks like those guys are really giving him what for. Okay. Nicolas Cage uh, pulls him into the hallway to safety. Where's the last rocket? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of this is just to get the, the scoop on where the last rocket is. And Harris tells him that it's in the lower lighthouse and then ech, yeah. he dies. That was convenient. Honestly, the fact that he survived just long enough to tell us where that rocket was, that's handy. Saves us the trouble. I was gonna, I was gonna step on his genitals until he died. That's how we used to do it in prison. If you need to get the truth from someone and you don't have a lot of time to torch them, just take your boot heel and just squash one of the testicles. I'll tell you whatever you want. It pops like a grape. I don't mean the feel of it. I mean the sound. It's disturbing. <laughs> he would have told us anything after that just so he didn't have to hear the sound with his other Johnny. <laughs> so about this time, Sean Connery fires off a shot at Mercenary Newbie, who retaliates by throwing not one but two grenades at Sean Connery. Sean Connery sees this and he hides in a bathtub, which protects him i guess nicholas cage runs up to disarm the final sleeve of green orbs and then mercenary Candyman he chases after him he wasn't seriously wounded in that last gun battle but he should have been Candyman comes in and he pulls a knife on nicholas cage who says if i drop this canister of green balls we both die and then nicholas cage asks Candyman, say friend do you like the elton john song rocket man i don't really think i know it because really you don't know rocket man no, 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 no. That's Rocket Man, right? No, 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 no. 
No, no, no. I think you're thinking of Crocodile Rock. I know that one. I don't know. Hold on. Hold on. I I got this. Hold on. I got this. I got this. It's, um, goodbye. Nope. Nope. Uh, It's Rocket. How does Rocket Man go? I know I like it. You're not an Elton John fan. Uh, not particularly. I'm more of a kind of a West Coast guy. You know, it it doesn't really matter. Because the only reason I ask is because you're the Rocket Man. And then he fires the rocket, which goes into the chest of the Candyman. He blasts out this window on the side of Alcatraz. And then Candyman's on the tip of the rocket for just a brief moment and then he falls off and he just gets impaled on a large metal fence post with barbed wire wrapped around it Ooh, that's gonna hurt the only person left to be a bad guy in our movie is mercenary newbie mm-hmm. who shows up to track down nicholas cage nicholas cage accidentally drops one of those green balls and it rolls across the floor and he leaps over and grabs it before it plummets to the ground below then nicholas cage takes all of the green balls puts them down in what looks like a small rectangular air vent and then he puts all of them in this little hidey hole except for the one that got away why did he not put the final green ball in there it doesn't make sense why he kept one of these balls of death on him as he was removing the final rocket ship guidance component thingy i was gonna use it as the ring for my soon-to-be wife you know put it in like a little dolphin setting (laughs) it would have been beautiful so as all this is happening that third mercenary we mentioned earlier he gets up on the high ground he has a gun he's gonna shoot nicholas cage but then sean connery shows up and smacks that guy around Mm -hmm. and he falls off a rooftop just so that sean connery can kill another guy then mercenary newbie shows up he shoots a gun at nicholas cage who leaps from one high rooftop to a low rooftop there's a little slow motion action here and then off in the distance we see these fighter jets are on their way Mm -hmm. my question is does nicholas cage or sean connery know these fighter jets are coming to kill them i at no point in the movie was i aware that they knew that there was this plan to blow the place up with thermite okay how did they know that the flare call it all it was during that scene earlier where they gave sean connery the hot foot juice and they reinforced the stab in the heart they also said here are some green flares and when everything is neutralized you fire these off and and that way people know we're in the clear gotcha okay right sean connery ends up this fighting another soldier it's like a video game man they just pop up characters we've never even seen before this is like that like that russian mechanic from raiders of the lost ark and he's beating up sean connery he says he's gonna take pleasure in this because his old man was irish what yeah and so sean connery ends up just wrapping a big ass chain around this guy's neck and throwing the business end of it into a well or something which chokes the guy to death yeah it's a complete like where did this guy come from all right i guess we just needed this movie to be another three minutes longer mercenary newbie is fighting nicholas cage like they basically ends up on top of him beating the hell out of him starts strangling him as a matter of fact nicholas cage just grabs the poison sphere in his pocket and is like suck vx and shoves it in this guy's mouth and hits him in the jaw which crushes the vial and spills the vx juice all into this guy's mouth and he just turns into a big bubbling pile of goo right and then nicholas cage has to grab the uma thurman hypodermic from a pouch on his leg jams it in his heart which doesn't feel like it's like he's learned anything or anything like it's just he needed to do that so he doesn't die and then gets the flare and as the jets are approaching they see all the smoke from the flares as Nicolas Cage in slow motion waves them over his head 
And one of the Jets, though, is like, oops, um, you guys, I feel really silly about this, but we kind of let our bombs go. Well, some of them peel away, but one of them doesn't because this movie couldn't end without an explosion. That would be very anticlimactic. <laughs> so it explodes. It blows Nicolas Cage into the water. Into a swimming pool. <laughs> into a swimming pool in Malibu. Sean Connery is like, shut up a bitch. This guy's going to drown on my watch. I can't let that happen. He's getting me hooked up with Stacy. He said he got an address from some sort of computer system. You know what? Uh, he's probably going to get Stacy's at. You know what? I'm jumping in the water. Two pay be damned. So, yeah, he drags him to shore. And then we see Agent Paxton calling on the radio and is like, is anybody there? Is anybody alive on Alcatraz? Are the hostages okay? Hello, anyone? And Nicholas Cage says, yeah, every hostage is alive. Even though I have no reason to know this to be true. I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure I've got a good feeling about it. There's a moment after they hang up where the authorities are on their way to pick up Nicolas Cage. Back at FBI HQ, FBI Director Womack says, Oh, what about Sean Connery? Is he dead? And Nicolas Cage looks at Sean Connery and he says, Yeah, he's dead. He's all dead. <laughs> <laughs> right and so he hangs up on him and then sean connery is like listen you're doing me a real solid by giving me that cover i'll tell you what before i go where are you going on your honeymoon and he's like well me and the missus were thinking about going to maui or maybe santa monica or perhaps yes, shut shut the shut up shut. all right here's where you need to go all right fort walton texas why would i go there shut up yeah when you get there you're gonna go to the saint michael's church all right? In the front pew right leg, it's hollow. Is it Catholic? It doesn't matter. Look, I wrote this down. I'm a Presbyterian. It's okay. They'll let you in. I put it on this piece of paper, because right, you seem to be a bit of a dimwit. Take this, and there's something special there for you. And then Sean Connery, he just disappears like a magical leprechaun. Is it a Beatles record? And speaking of magically disappearing and reappearing, FBI Director Womack and Agent Paxton just magically show up next to him. <laughs> they do. It's like they took a teleporter. I don't know if it's witchcraft or what's going on. Womack is like, oh, where's Sean Connery? I need to see it with my own two eyes that he's not here. He vaporized, sir. Vaporized. That sounds pretty legit. Is that science? That's totally science. I'm a science FBI agent. I do science all the time. If anybody asks what happened to Sean Connery, he vaporized and that was my idea. Paxton kind of sidles up to Nicolas Cage is like, vaporized, huh? That's totally what happened. He vaporized right in front of my eyes, got blown out to sea. He's nothing but fish food. And he's definitely not back in my hotel room getting the $200 I told him about in the Bible and trying to squeeze into my pants and shirt and suit coat. Because I'm a very small man and he despite his age, is a beefy fella. Do you know if we have any sort of pharmaceutical that can help to reduce what I found out is called a murder boner? It's very painful. <laughs> I've been working on something I call an anti-Cialis. <laughs> the movie ends, Chad, with Carla and Nicolas Cage in their fancy 1950s era car. Uh -huh. It's his Volvo. He talked about how he drove a Volvo. And apparently now they got a bulldog. Ah, uh, whatever. I was just so happy to feel like, oh, the credits could come anytime now. We we're about wrapped up yep. uh, he runs out of a church with the leg of a pew in one hand as the minister slash preacher of this church chases after him <laughs> <laughs> there's what's right there's what's right never the twain shall meet <laughs> and so he gets in the car and like 
Carla takes off. Uh, she's the getaway driver here. And he starts to pull this microfilm out of the hollow leg of this pew. And she's like, hey, what is that? He goes, well, you want to know who really shot JFK? And that's it. And they ride off into the sunset. That is The Rock. Well, you left out one thing. Oh. Words do come up that say, this film is dedicated in loving memory to Don Simpson, who, according to the coroner's toxicology report, Bo, died from an overdose of 21 drugs, including but not limited to cocaine and a broad spectrum of stimulants, antidepressants, sedatives, and tranquilizers. (laughs) So from everyone here at Pick 6 Movies, if you or someone you know and love has a crippling addiction to drugs, seek help. Absolutely. And also don't make movies like Days of Thunder and this, which are almost entirely inspired by cocaine. (laughs) So that's it. We have come to the end of yet another season of Pick 6 Movies. And as we are wont to do, Bo, we always like to rank Mm -hmm. our movies from best to worst, worst to best. But I argue that all six of these movies are equally... (laughs) unwatchable i truly don't think ranking like it is such it is the difference between eggshell and ivory we are really it it takes a keen eye to discern the level Mm -hmm. of quality however i do think that if we rank these movies from the villain's point of view of which villain in these films because they were clearly the best characters in Uh all of these movies how would you rank them from top to bottom bottom to top of the six bad guys we encountered during this okay let me say first I'm going to start from the bottom, but there's really a four-way tie for the worst. Okay. I'm going to say the worst is maybe Passenger 57. As a bad guy? Um, Followed okay. by The Rock at number five, Cliffhanger mm-hmm. at number four, and Speed 2 at number three. I think all of them have completely worthless villains. Number two is Under Siege 2, because you've got two villains, yep. one of whom is Eric Bogosian, and he's hilarious and having a wonderful time, and the other is Everett McGill from Twin Peaks and Silver Bullet, and he's having a good time too. It's almost offset by how terrible Steven Seagal is, but they're having a blast, and so that's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. Number one, hands down, Sudden Death. Powers Booth is a great villain. It's not a very good movie, but you put him as the villain in a better film, it would be gangbusters. We're pretty close on this. I didn't have a four-way tie. I I stacked them from bottom to top. My bottom was Ed Harris. I just don't think he's a very good bad guy. I get the anti-hero and the noble cause and all that, but it it wasn't a very good villain. I put Cliffhanger next because I felt that John Lithgow was grossly underutilized Uh in that movie. Ahead of that, I put Bruce Payne because, again, he seems like he's having fun with it. Then my number three is Eric Bogosian. Number two, I put Willem Dafoe just because he's really creepy and he puts those leeches all over himself. But he didn't do nothing. He pistol whipped Sandra Bullock in the head in a seaplane. All right. And then my number one is obviously Powers Booth. Anyone who threatens to fill a child's (laughs) mouth with spiders, come on. He is absolutely planning to shoot children in that movie he just gets foiled he wants to he is itching to kill children yeah powers booth is so good in that not a great movie powers booth is a delight in it i think all of these movies as diehard knockoffs they're all equally good and equally bad i think if you've really picked any one of them to watch you'll have as good a time and bad a time it really doesn't matter yeah they're they're not very good movies as a bunch but uh chad 
when it comes to not very good movies. There are some movies that are not very good, but there are other movies that are really bad. Yeah, one might even call them bombs. And for our next season, Chad. Season 20. The silver anniversary, maybe. We are assembling a sextet of movies that famously were box office and critical disasters. Yes, audiences hated them. They are some of the most epically unwatchable and truly disastrous movies ever made. Yeah, the kind of movies that make you question whether or not you should be doing a podcast about movies. Do you have a recommendation for a movie that we could kick off such a season for? Oh yeah, I love to set sail for adventure, Chad. I know that you do. And so we are going to be looking at returning champion Rennie Harlan. Oh, and his work with a film, uh, a pirate movie, yes, called Cutthroat Island. It is way too long. It's really boring. The dialogue doesn't work, and the cast is wrong for the parts. But it also has the added benefit of being a spectacular financial failure. I like that. Do you have a name for this particular season, Bob? Why, we're going to call it, Chad, Bombs Away. I love it. So gird your loins, ladies and gentlemen, because the bombs are coming. And Frank Langella spends a good amount of the movie shirtless. This is true. Maybe the one thing to recommend that movie is that Frank Langella, who is not in it nearly enough, is a tall drink of water. (laughs) So come back and see us in two weeks' time as we kick off a brand new season of six terrible, terrible movies. With lots of interesting history and fun facts and stupid voices and snarky remarks. Everything that you know and love about Pixie Movies. Feel free to reach out to us at any time at pixixmovies at gmail.com. You can find us on social media lurking around. We're all over the place. Drop us a line. Leave us a note. Bo, any final thoughts that you have on The Rock? Stacy's mom has got it going on. Stacy's mom has got it. I like this song, Goodspeed. <laughs> we'll see everyone in two weeks. Ha, 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 ha.